I wonder how many film particles are going to drip it through into the podcast. Hello. A triumphant fanfare resounds as a resplendent figure steps from behind brocaded curtains. He lifts his hat, bows to his audience, and twinkles his eye before speaking. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and squire, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's feature is The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Jerry Gilliam's epic fantasy from 1989, and my guest is fellow podcaster and Podnose originator, George Grimwood. Join us from the saloon bar of the National Film Theatre, golden rays of spring sunshine gleam on the merry grey concrete outside. Hello, George. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yep, um, just uh, looking outside onto the South Bank in the National Film Theatre where... Uh, BFI South Bank. BFI South Bank. On this, on this lovely summery day. Yes, for a change, in, yeah. in a, a nice summery-like spring day. And looking out on this, this beautiful weather, this lovely sunshine, the waves of the river lapping against the shore, it, it really puts me in the mood for an adventure. An adventure indoors, an away, ad- away from it all. An adventure indoors, in a bar, <laughs> <laughs> at lunchtime. At the BFI. Now, so, uh, the adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yes. Which we are here to discuss. Now, I saw this uh, on video, probably not long after it came out, because I remember that my dad was very keen on Brazil, uh, the film. As opposed, <laughs> As opposed to, to the, the, the country or the song. Or the waxing. Nice. I'm going to have to explain that to people who hear this now. And uh, then this obviously came out, and it was the next Terry Gilliam film, it's the Python influence. So it was, you know, it was a family adventure for the family. And um, I quite enjoyed it, I remember. I was only about eight or nine. I remember it having a lot in it, a lot to process as a child, which is good, because I think that's the benefit of a lot of Gilliam films, is that they, they, they work on a second, third, fourth watch because so much is compacted into them. Hmm. And no more so than, than The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I mean, Brazil and Time Bandits, which you know many have said, he has said, as uh, part of a trilogy of the... Evolution of an, um, imagination, I suppose. Uh, the how do you yes, uh, sort of the imagined stages of life. Mm. Time Bandits is childhood fantasy. Um, Brazil is middle-aged daydreaming, and Adventures of Baron Munchausen is the fantasies of an older man. Do you think that with Brazil, for example, because I would say Adventures of Baron Munchausen is closer to Time Bandits in terms of its family accessibility? Yes, absolutely. So it's uh, it's quite strange, I think, in terms of how, the, although obviously it's about the evolution of you know, the, the different three ages of man, you'd have thought potentially that the older one would have perhaps even been more mature, but actually it kind of reverts back to the imagination of time bandits. Well, there, there are, are more acknowledgements of age. Uh, the spectre of death is a recurring character in uh, Munchausen. But it's it's... It's almost as if the Baron is enjoying a second childhood, and it, it fits with a lot of trilogies where the first one is the first one is light, the second one is much darker in tone, and the third 
recovers the tone and, and is much more similar to the first film. And I think that Time Bandits and Munchausen have a very similar tone. Mm. That kind of high adventure, very much comedic in tone, whereas Brazil is a lot darker, a lot more grim. I don't really like Brazil very much. I admire it as a piece of work, but I wouldn't watch it for enjoyment or entertainment. It's just too nasty. I kind of watch it to feel free, if that makes sense. It's bizarre. I kind of respect the... I, I always do like... I'm very fond of that sort of classic story of the little man against the, the big world, mm. um, against the system. And Brazil's the perfect story for that. I mean... Oh, yeah. And I quite like the fact that it's... Even though, for all intents and purposes, it's got that quite manic tone as well when, when it really sets in motion and you've got Jonathan Price just... You know, in a frenzy. Sam Lowry. Anybody saying Lowry? Ian Holm. Oh. Very good. Yeah. Um, well, I've got, I've got the soundtrack, Michael. Uh, I think it's Michael. I want to say Michael Nyman. Michael Kamen. Kamen. Michael Kamen. Who's Michael Nyman? Michael Nyman is also a composer and a birthday mate of mine. Oh, there you go. A, a um, great composer, uh, QPR fan, and resident of Mexico City. I'm friends with him on Facebook. It's, he's hilarious. It's, it's really surprising. Oh, if I was friends with all my uh, birthday buddies, um, you'd have Kevin Spacey, Mick Jagger, George Bernard Shaw. He definitely is not on Facebook, I've checked. Um, who else have we got? Uh, Sandra Bullock, Blake Edwards, Stanley Kubrick. You have, share your birthday with Stanley Kubrick. And Helen Mirren, yeah. Uh, interesting. Helen Mirren was in the sequel to 2001. Which was called... 2010. Yeah, you see, it skipped a whole load of uh, films. Well, you know, um, go off on a slight tangent. You know, there's actually four books in that series. Now, I'm going to see if I can guess what the other ones are. Are they? 2062 is the third 2062? one. 2062? Yeah, is that the third one? 2048. 2061. I was not far off. Of course, off. it's going to end with a one. Well, it's not necessarily going to end in a one, but. That was a complete guess. I was quite happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. And the, that's the third one or the fourth that's one? The thir- that's the third one. Oh, so the fourth one, 3001. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Arthur C. Clarke. Predictable. They actually do work as a, as a series. Everything that's sort of left up in the air at the end of the first book is explained eventually. Is John Lithgow still in it? No, but Roy Scheider's... Or Haywood Floyd is actually in the first two books and the first two films, and he's played by Roy Scheider in 2010. He is the main character in 2061. Mm where he's very old and now has to live in space. And he goes and uh, visits Halley's Comet and finds a civilization on there or something. I can't really remember. And, of course, um, this connects back in part to... Um, no, it doesn't. I was thinking of Alien with Ian Holm. And I, was going, yeah. ah, <laughs> I was trying to think of a segue back. Ian, Ian Holm is also not in Baron Rinchhausen. No, but he's in Time Bandits and he's in um, Brazil. Yeah, and Jonathan Price is in Brazil and Baron Rinchhausen, but he isn't in Time Bandits. Hmm... Whatever happened to the kid from Time Bandits? Who knows? Craig. David. No. <laughs> it's a big studio production. I think Gilliam's most expensive movie. And apparently the, the biggest production to be shot in Europe. Italy, in was a, it? Uh, yeah, Italy, Italy also location filming in Spain. Um, but the biggest production sort of in Europe generally for about 20 years. They had money poured into it. Yeah, big studio backing it in Colombia. And when it was released, there'd been a change of management at the studio. And David Putnam, who I think had been running Columbia, had been ousted. The new regime hated him and hated all his work. They buried 
Munchausen. It got released in 117 cinemas, mm. which is nothing. It was a commercially a huge flop, but it got very strong reviews. Yeah, and was nominated for four Oscars and four BAFTAs. Which Oscars? Because I mean, it's quite. I mean, like if you're going to say sort of, for example, supporting actors, supporting cast, there's lots of those. There, there's, there's a lot of actors in this film. Yeah. Uh, no, they were. Um, as I say, technical. They're not really technical awards, but they're called below the line. So I think it was art direction, costume design, makeup, and visual effects. Did they win any? Unfortunately, not. Didn't win any of the Baftas either. Mm. Uh, in, the, in this in this equivalent categories. Uh, am I right in saying probably the most nominated out of the the trilogy? I would assume. I believe so. I think Brazil was nominated for its script. Makes sense, yeah. Um, but I don't believe it was nominated for anything else. And Time Bandits probably just fell. Time Bandits has probably bypassed it altogether. Even though I, I, I remember uh, reading my, in Michael Palin's published diaries that he mm. talks about the, the reception Time Bandits had in the US, and it was very positive. Yeah. And it was a hit over there because it's the, the adventure combined with the, the English sense of humour, which exports very well. Everyone should read Michael Payne's diaries. Michael Payne's diaries are fantastic. Mm. There's three volumes now. Is it three volumes? Is it three? Yeah, because yes. it's the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and it's his whole life from I think it's the commissioning of Monty Python through to about nineteen ninety-eight. I can't really remember what he was doing then, but it's just his whole life, and it's fascinating reading. And he's he really is the world's nicest man. Well, I, I haven't read the third volume, but um, how do they do? They incorporate the travel diaries, or is that a whole separate entity? Because I know that they're already published. I haven't actually read the third volume yet. No, so I, I, got, I, I bought it just after Christmas, and uh, it's 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 April now. Uh, <laughs> but I believe that it's just his personal diaries, rather than the the diaries that he wrote in the expectation that they would be published anyway. Oh yes, which yeah. he did for um, Around the World in Eighty Days and all those other adventure shows, mm. which are also really good. I, I remember watching Pole to Pole when it was broadcast. And thinking, this is fantastic. Around the World in 80 Days is incredibly comforting. I mean, if, if you're having a bad day, if you're having a bad week, or if you just want to have a, if you just want to feel good about life, honestly, Around the World in 80 Days with Michael Palin, get the DVD, just you know, cup of cup of tea, you know, it, it's that vibe. I met Michael Palin once. I he's one of the only ones I haven't encountered. In any capacity, one of the only ones out of Python. All mm. oh, right, no, just people. As I say, yeah, because there's, <laughs> se- there's seven billion of them. You must have had a very, very busy week. Well, um, uh, our fellow, um, our mutual friend Jonathan Sloman, who's been a guest on uh, various shows and hopefully will be a guest on. Yeah, I've been I've been twisting his arm and I'm waiting for it to snap. He was in a one-legged race. Uh, yeah, so was I. Promoting ripping yarns. Yeah, yeah. I still got the t-shirts. I wear them to the gym. <laughs> oh, I, I, I believe there is a photo of him with Michael Palin standing next to him, going, "Come on, you can do it." Yeah. Um, uh, Jonathan was struck. We, none of the people involved realised how hard it would be to hop 400 metres, mm. and Jonathan was struggling more than some other people were. And Michael Palin, Michael Palin, and Terry Jones, who were there, wearing school caps and everything, were, you know jollying everyone along and Palin joined in with uh, with Jonathan to sort of uh, encourage him over the line and that wound up being used by the Associated Press <laughs> wow yeah I mean, that's great I mean the thing and, and I mean you know of all the things that I think I'd, I'd want to happen in my life is to be to be uh, encouraged along a finishing line by Michael Palin yeah it was it was a lovely day yeah that's a strange lovely day I in fact um, it was uh, up on Hampstead Heath Around the athletics track, and um, 
an athletics club happened to be passing by just as we were starting to get everything together and Palin ran up the hill and I was saying, oh, we're, we're, we're going to have a race. Do you, do you want to join in? So when Michael Palin asks you to do something, you say yes. So when we set off, the, the athletics club, who are all you know, super fit, streaked off in front and won. Everyone else, you know, I'm, I was not even as, I'm, I'm not very fit now, but I was also not fit at the time. Everyone was struggling. One guy who decided to dress as an explorer and was wearing stiff oh. thigh-length boots, which really aren't suitable for hopping in. Bleeding at the knee, I would have thought. Yeah, he took about 10 minutes getting around the track, and probably closer to 15. Did he finish? Everyone finished. Oh, that's good. At least it, he, yeah. it was supposed to be a world record for the biggest hopping race ever, and oh. we actually didn't make it. Oh, I see. Unfortunately. Uh, well, they have to do it again. They'll have to reissue. they have to reissue yards. Ripping Yards again, I'm sure they will. I mean, that, I mean, that's a lovely series. That, that's, it is very good, yeah. That's up there with, with Around the World in 80 Days. You can basically just anything that Michael Palin has done, apart from his darker Fierce stuff. creatures. Almost everything that Michael Palin well, has Brazil, done. Well, you say that Brazil's quite dark. Well, yeah, no, that's the thing. I was, I, I, it suddenly dawned on me, because also he did, he, Michael Palin did a, um, a series not that long ago, um, as of 2016. Oh, uh, the, 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 the drama, the mm. kind of ghost story. Yeah. I didn't um, see it. I think it was called Remember Me. But I knew, I knew something was up because he didn't look happy on the front cover. Yeah, well, it was, no, it was, it, was de- it was deliberately promoted as being a, a supernatural drama. Mm. It wasn't very good. I didn't see it. It was, it was very well directed, and he was very good in a, in a, very, in a completely straight, serious role. But the plot did, didn't really hold together. Um, Michael Palin will live forever. That's just a, a well-known fact. And I hope, I sincerely hope, in this very bleak age of 2016, where we're losing people by the day. I know, it's such awful. Wood. Yeah, uh, that uh, I uh, yes, I, I I wish him many 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 years. Well, I'll tell you this: people will live forever as long as they're remembered. Mm. Yep, you, you can have that on a T-shirt under the Cinema Limbo logo. <laughs> it's not. It really belongs on a T-shirt. It's not. It's not sort of positive enough. No, but it is mildly shameless to have it have it have all these positive quotes underneath someone's logo. That's what you want to do. That's what you want to do. It's, it's positive, but it's not exciting. Mm. We're, we're going to put Just Do It under the yeah. Cinema Limbo logo. When you, when you listen to Cinema Limbo, every day is a Saturday. <laughs> is, it, is a Saturday matinee. Excellent. There you go. So the movie opens. <laughs> Actually, we're doing rather well. It's a fif- only 15 minutes in and we're only just starting the movie. Much like the movie. Yes. Oh, it's the, same. The, the movie opens with uh, the studio logo and a big heroic fanfare of a theme. Michael, yes. Michael Kamen. Indeed. Kamen Islands. And um, we open on the late 18th century, somewhere in Europe with the sea nearby. Hmm. Um, I think you suggested it may have, might have been Hungary before, which is landlocked. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe there's a bit someone of left, Someone left the tap running. A bit of rain. It's all right. And uh, we're told that it's the Age of Reason. Yes. Specific. And that's, that is, of course... That, that comes into play, of course, the fact that it is specifically the age of reason. I, I, irony. Irony. Well, we don't know yet. Hmm. But the town is under siege. Yes. By the Ottoman Empire. And it's loud and it's, it's, it's messy. It's loud and it's chaotic. And it, I mean, it's a proper Gilliam start. Yeah. It, yeah. It, feels, it, feels, it feels very realistic. This is what it would look like. But it has that that sort of frantic energy mm. and that slightly surreal edge that's very specifically Gillian-esque and uh, with tableau of people covered in filth 
and a decapitated statue. Mm. In a theatre... Which, as it turns out, decapitated statue, it's not just a, a display of anarchy, of course, it's also to hold back an integral part of the story. Because it's... It's the head indicates who it actually is. Oh, I see. Oh, right, because... Uh, yeah, I, I missed that. We'll... we'll We'll put a pin in that, and we'll get to that later on. Because that does become relevant at the end of the movie. Yeah. But we don't, but listen, you should have seen it by now, so we're not going to spoil it. Yeah, you should, really, around? you should really be watching the film before you listen to this. Yeah. We, um, we, I don't know, I, I don't know though. I've heard film, I've heard, I've actually heard shows, though, where people have talked about films, and it's made me then want to watch. So I don't know. It's always hard to kind of pinpoint the tone, really. I think you should always give the listener the opportunity to see the film in advance they always have the chance because this is recorded uh, but but to also inform so it's not it's not sprung on them mm. to educate inform and entertain exactly bbc rules big british castle mm. once in a in a theater in a theater that is rapidly falling to bits a player is being mounted of the life of baron munchhausen the famous german aristocrat and soldier and liar who told tall tales of his various adventures travelling to the island of cheese being swallowed by a giant fish all these kinds of antics and we see that in a sense they're actually prefiguring the entire movie <laughs> because all these stories actually are ultimately the plot of the film yeah do you think that's quite cheeky? well it's certainly intended for sure of course but uh, I, I, I well Gideon is cheeky I mean, and only one only has to hunt down the um, the shot of Terry Gilliam at the Monty Python reunion, legs and arms in the air. <laughs> it's fantastic, and I was there for that moment. I was, oh, oh, it was good. It, I think it's a lot of people not the Monty Python reunion, but it was so nice. It was, it wasn't going to be anything new. It was just, it was, it was just comforting to see everyone in one place. That's yeah. the thing. It, it was never going to be. You know, I mean, obviously Eric Idle gets to do, you know, show showboating of the, mm. the choreography, which, which in all fairness was well done, and it put a new spin on a few things, and, you know, he's, he's a showman. Uh, he is, him. yeah. Yeah, and you can't knock him for that. I mean, you can knock him for splitting airs, which I still think we should watch as well. No. But Eric Idle is very much the original Mr. Cheeky. <laughs> well, y- yes. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, but yes, I, the thing is, speaking of Eric Idle, of course, now not to deviate, uh, because I know, I know we're, we're only just about to meet him in the film at yeah. this point, but um, it was interesting. Um, I saw a behind-the-scenes thing um, on YouTube, which you can, you can find on YouTube. I'll, I'll, I'll put it up. Uh, yeah, if you put a link on the, uh, the page for this podcast. Mm, yeah, I, I will. It, and you, you'll see, I think it's, it's not that long, but you see a few on-set... Uh, I assume they're on set, unless he's made the effort of dressing back up in the character after the fact. But uh, it's it's Michael Palin going, huh, well, not Michael Palin, sorry, Eric Idle, going, huh, well, you know, I, sh- I should have learned, should should have learned my lesson, you know, uh, having worked with uh, Terry before. <laughs> oh, I can't believe I'm here. This slightly, very slightly passive aggressive kind of. Uh, why am I doing this again? But the thing is, I love the fact that then I saw the um, Monty Python almost the lawyers cut or almost. Almost the truth. Almost the, the truth. Yeah, the documentary series about the history of Python. And he more or less reiterates the same thing. Um, in, it's like and when they're talking about Holy Grail, and he goes, "Oh, and I should I should have just left it there. I shouldn't have then gone and got involved with uh, Munchausen." He's obviously 
he's obviously very supportive of, the, of it, but you can tell he really regrets doing it. He wants to be supportive, he just doesn't want to be present. Yes, yeah. The daughter of the theatre company's manager is played by Sarah Polly. Sarah Polly. The Canadian actress turned acclaimed writer-director. Auteur. Yeah. Yeah. It's done extremely well. I, the thing is, though, is that as for much as I remember her um, brilliant turn in... Dawn of the Dead? Uh, the Sweet Hereafter. Oh, yes. Which is a fantastic film. Um, one, that, one, in fact, that, I mean, I must say is that, I mean, I went to... Uh, someone agrees. Uh, I, I did a film studies course, uh, and... One of, one of the films that we were shown kind of as part of the course was The Sweet Hereafter, and I wouldn't have seen it were it not for the course. And it, the same goes for one of my now favourite films, Once Upon a Time in the West, for example. So it's, it's interesting. I would, I would strongly recommend anyone who gets the opportunity, even if it's, it doesn't have to be uni or anything like that, just, just go on a film course because it, it, you'll be shown things that you'll be looking at academically and it will make you take a new perspective. Any opportunity, just take it. Or just go to just go and see bloody films. Yeah. For goodness sake. Just, just listen to this podcast, because it's like a university course. Yeah. yeah. The School of Life. It's, it's, it's like the open university, except it's free, and you don't have to write any essays. It's a very open university. Yeah. But it's so open that well, it's just splayed out all over the page. It's just ruddy there. Um, but Sarah Polly, though, I remember, it's weird, because um, I, I didn't realise w- way after the fact um, that Sarah Polly, the, the girl, the young girl in uh, The Adventures of Mary Munchausen was also the same person who is more or less the lead in uh, the underrated 90s film Go, which I really like, uh, and no one else I know has either heard of it or likes it, but I thought it was really good. No, I, um, I passed Go without collecting $200. Good soundtrack as well. Probably. Timothy Oliphant. Great. And a bloke from Grange Hill. But there's backstage drama going on at the theatre company. Bill Patterson. Bill Patterson as Henry Salt is the head of the company and is playing Munchausen with a horrible fake nose. And as the play is continuing, the manager of the town, would you say? The... Uh, He's he's well, he's I I are we talking about the Jonathan Price? Yeah, character? Jonathan Price's character, the right ordinary ordinary Jackson, because, uh, right, Horatio Jackson. Sorry, because I feel that he's meant to represent much much more than what he is. I'm assuming he is he is the forces of organisation, reason, rationality. So he's rationalising the army in the, his little introductory scene by being introduced to this very heroic soldier who single-handedly did something extraordinary. And he says, oh, you've, you've done extremely well. We're very impressed with what you've done. We're going to have to have you killed because your extraordinary heroism is uh, damaging the morale of the other soldiers. Sting. Played by Sting. He doesn't even get to speak. Well, no, they'd have to pay him then. Well, it could be an advantage because he's not a particularly good actor. But he does look really, he looks really upset mm. when he's told he's going to be killed, but does it, does it without speaking. And... I would uh, say that it was very intentional uh, casting because, in regard, certainly in regard to his lyrics and his general peaceful lifestyle, I would say that um, uh, you know executing the greatest war hero who happens to be played by Sting, who's very much a pacifist, mm. um, it was very very intentional to have him playing that role. The thing is, it's that's what I love about people like Sting and, and Phil Collins, for example. That they're just game for anything. Like, yeah, or I'll come come do a, come do Hook. Yeah, that's a weird one. That's a strange. We should do hook. 
It's not that it. I mean, it's a love. It's a lovely. It's a loved film, but it's a strange film. Even Steven Spielberg doesn't like Hook. Really? Yeah, he thinks it's one of the worst films he's made. Uh, now, do how do you know this? Is what's what's? I heard an interview. Oh, and he just went. It's terrible. He, yeah, he said it was just a mistake. Shouldn't have done it. Hook more like rubbish. Uh, uh, more like pook. Yeah, more, more like kook. But Horatio, Horatio, yeah, <laughs> Horatio Jackson is also weirdly played with a German accent. Now, am I right in saying isn't uh, by the end of the film he's much more of a villain? A villain. Yeah, he he starts off as as a an unpleasant bureaucrat, but he also I mean he orders the soldier killed. Yeah, on his on his rational, reasonable ethic. Hmm. So he's already a very unpleasant character, but he does become much more of an antagonist by deliberately placing himself in opposition to the Baron, who stands much more for the force of imagination, of daring, of... Creativity. Of creativity, exactly. And that the spirit of adventure, whereas Jackson wants to make everything small, everything very rational, put everything in a box, and rigidly organised, even to the point where, towards the end, there is an inference that he is responsible for fomenting the war itself. And that he and the uh, the Turk have engineered this so that it will allow the rationalization of their two civilizations almost. Yeah. And squeezing out all that which makes life extraordinary. Yes. What a bastard. Well, the, the thing is, though, it, I... And obviously, we're, I, I'm not skipping to the end intentionally here, but, but it, to, in terms of looking at Jonathan Price's character overall in, in the film, am I right in saying... I, have a, I remember as a child, when I saw the film in a much younger age, in, interpreting his character more or less representative as the angel of death, that, he, that they were one and the same in many respects, or, or that they were, in, they were in cahoots. I don't think so, because when the angel appears and sort of sort of splits out of that statue on the side of the church, I think. Uh, Jackson is, is shocked and horrified because it doesn't fit into his worldview. The idea of the, this, this monster, effectively, being part of the real world is the total antithesis of what he believes. So they... Sort of they're, they're sort of the literal metaphorical symbols for the death of the soul, and he, in a way. And he can't handle that he's... Resp- uh, so, so actually, then... Thinking out loud, in theory, the the idea then that he is then responsible for the death of the potential death of Baron Munchausen. Yeah. When the angel of death becomes a th- because from from his action, he becomes unintentionally creative by creating the angel of death within the realms of the story, and ultimately goes against anything he believes in. He's it's, he's more like a harbinger because the. the it, the, the, the angel isn't really created, it just appears mm. when it's required. But he invokes it yes. by causing creativity to be killed, and then that, that is then sucked away from this world. And as, as you said before, the angel of death is, is a very terrifying... Uh, oh yeah, and it's, it screams for no reason, just to be frightening. Which kind of is, is the one big element that they... That, that sort of being, brings it back away from being a family film mm. because now now something I should point out We're, we are recording this in a bar and there is a laughing man the play is interrupted by the real by, by, who, man who claims 
He is the real Baron. He's a very elderly man wearing a military tunic and a, a threadbare tricorn hat. And this pretender Baron draws his sword, slices off Bill Patterson's fake nose. Which is slightly... It's slightly scary for a second. Yeah, because you think that... Because it's, it's sort of... Because he's so caked in makeup that it, you can't tell whether or not that's his real nose or not. It isn't, because once it's sliced off, you can see his real nose is underneath, and it's fine. Yeah. And he also recognises the other actors in the play as being his old friends. Yeah. Which is slightly Wizard of Oz-ish. It is. We have Jack Purvis as... Well, that's the, 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 uh, the, ba- the Baron's friends, the ca- those characters. Uh, Jack Purvis as Gustavus, who has wind powers. Gust, you see. Adolphus, played by Charles McEwen, who co-wrote the script. Dolph. Yeah, because he has extraordinary eyesight. Like Dolph Lundgren. Yes. Yep. Dolph Lundgren actually has a PhD in physics. That's why he's kindergarten cop too. Yeah, because he's got a lot to teach them. Eric Idle, of course, as... Himself. As himself, basically. What's his name in that? Berthold. Berthold. Berthold, who can, who's the fastest man in the world. And when John Neville says Berthold, there's something very sweet about it. Berthold. Oh, Berthold. And uh, a lesser-known actor, who we discovered is the only one in the cast not to have his own Wikipedia page, Winston Dennis as Albrecht, who is super strong. Yeah, and I, I think, as far as I can gather, that's more or less like the only film he's been in. I get the impression that he might be like an athlete of some kind. But personal details, what does that say? Well, I just... Oh, no, yes, I've been in other things. Oh, I see, he's been in... He was in Brazil. He's in all... He might be one of the only people who actually is in all three... Oh, he's in Time Bandits yeah. as well. I can't quite see from that angle because I'm looking at your phone. And, and none's on the run. So, okay, so just to clarify... So he's clearly, a, a, he's clearly a, then a, a friend or colleague of Gilliam's. Yeah, he's only been in seven films, and I, I, I do like I do kind of like the fact that he may very well be the only person, to my knowledge, essentially one of one of the only people who is in all three of the is it in all three it's in all three of the fantasy trilogy. Yeah, so he's the connecting tissue. He is the he is the the golden thread. Yeah, who does he play in Brazil and Time Bandits? Uh, samurai, what? He's the man who's the samurai warrior. Oh, that's interesting. And he plays the bullheaded warrior in Time Bandits. You know, in the uh, in the classical. And after right, and after all that, in Munchausen, he gets to play someone who actually speaks. That's fantastic. And gets to actually physically show his face. I'm, I'm glad we discovered that. So he because they're they're big deals. I mean, and, and it's they're connected as well. I mean, he the bullheaded warrior is like one of the more terrifying pieces. Yeah, that's yeah. And then Samurai Warrior, which is a very huge, which is which is a, a sort of a major co- character component because he is the the embodiment of the, the all the evil that Sam Lowry is fighting in his imagination in Brazil. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's interesting. And then and here after playing all his monsters, he gets to play like a really nice, friendly, cheery guy. Yeah, it's it's like a thank you from Gilliam. You yeah, get the impression. Yeah, you work so hard on those here, you're going to play a character who's a really nice guy who everyone likes, and yet you actually see your head. Yeah, you, you, see get, your you, face. Get, you get dialogue. Yeah, you get to talk to people. That's great. That's 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 uh, that's made my day. Yeah. So we were talking about all the characters. And ba- the Baron says that he knows all about what, the, what with the war because he started it. Yes. Because, and one of them is he, uh, he refuses to recognise reality. He sees the world the way he wants to see it. And he starts to talk to the audience, both in the theatre and to the audience watching the movie. Mm. And he explains how it is that the war came to be and how he met the Turk in the court in 
Turkey, one imagines. Yes. And there is a fantastic transition from the theatre through to the Harem and the Turks Palace, which is achieved without a cut by having adjoining sets. So we pan from one to the other, and it, as we just move very smoothly into the Baron's story. And I've only seen one other movie where you have that kind of cut, or that kind of non-edit. And that's Saw 3. Okay. Um, there's a scene where two characters are fighting, and they fall through a mirror together, and the camera follows them through the mirror into the next scene where someone's walking through a door. And you can see that there's actually there's glass on the floor that they're standing on. There was actually wasn't a cut there. It was just with adjoining sets at a breakaway mirror frame. That's extraordinary. Mm. And it's done completely... Seamless. With, it's, it's seamless, but it also doesn't draw attention to itself. Yeah. Well, I, I, and the thing is about that, that, aside from the transition, where you actually get to with the Turks' palace, it's remarkable. I mean, the detail in that is spectacular. The colour of it, and, and also the difference in tone. A very, it's still very busy as was the previous scene but it's it's brighter it's lighter you can feel the heat it's area it's area it is with, literally area yeah to begin with in the theatre it's night mm. but it's very gloomy it's very dark it's all candlelit and the room, it's daytime and it's in, as you say it's in the desert it's bright there's, there's a sense of open space even though it's relatively crowded and it just feels much more open I like the fact as well that the how would you describe it? The, the all the all the women who are surrounding him—is it a harem? What's that? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're all Rubenesque. They're, they're yes, they're all portly. Rubenesque. Some would say Rubenesque. I would say yeah. <laughs> you would agree with them. <laughs> I would say I would say yes. Uh, yes, they are. I, I like the fact they go against the assumption of what you'd expect. Yeah. It actually, I think it fits. It's more historically accurate mm. that they would be. La- that they would be larger women rather than what is perceived now to be the prevailing standard. Although it is interesting to see if you compare it to Gilliam's previous swarm of women in one space. Spank me! In, in the Holy Grail. In the Holy Grail. He does kind of have this tendency of, of, of getting this gaggle of... Having lots of women all together at in, once. In one space. And, and for the most part, you know, you, at the best you'll have like one leading role. But generally speaking, they're all just kind of... They sound... You know, <laughs> yeah, they're, like a, they're like a crowd, mm. or someone from the Three Studios, apparently. Well, the Baron and uh, the Turk are having a lovely time, mm. and the Baron bets the Turk that he can get hold of a, a delicious bottle of Toke, the popular liqueur, that is even better than anything in the Baron in the Turk's cellar, and he can do so within an hour. So he sends Berthold off to Vienna on foot. Oh, Vienna. And um, if the Baron loses, the Turk gets his head. And the Turk is so presumptuous of the fact he'll win. He, it's mo- like when you get to that point, you know, it's, um, you get the uh, the chap with the the executioner, the executioner, and and also, But the thing is, though, something that we should take into account as well. Of course, you've got this wonderful Gilliam contraption of the uh, human organ. The human organ. Yes, it is essentially a human organ. It's an organ made of humans. Well, to pass the the time, the Turk decides to perform his operetta for the Baron, which is called The Torturer's Apprentice, and he's built a special musical instrument which has torture victims inside and 
when he presses a key on the, the keyboard, it pokes them in a particular way. And they, so they make a, a screaming noise. And that's a lovely... <laughs> it's a good detail. Yeah. Which continues on, of course, with the timer, with the... What's the word I'm looking for? The, the um, hourglass. The hourglass. Yeah, there's the, the giant hourglass to measure out the hour, which makes a ticking noise. Because, of course, it does. Mm. Um, so Berthold has dozed off on the way, and the rest of the uh, characters band together to wake him up. So Albrecht throws uh, Adolphus up onto a high wall. Gustavus measures the wind speed with his, ear, with his big ear. And Adolphus fires a shot to knock an apple out of the tree to land on Berthold's head and wake him up. It's a very good way of demonstrating the relevance and consistency and the importance of all the characters and what their kind of, kind of special powers are. Exactly. It's, and it's done, it's done very quickly and very simply. But it's, it's great visual storytelling. Here is what they can do. One's strong, one has great wind-sensing power, and one has a, a phenomenal eyesight. And, and Berthold and Berthold can run. And this is why they work well together. Exactly, because... And, and when, we, when they're introduced, they're just sitting out in the courtyard playing cards. They're just having a nice time, just hanging out as, fa- as pals. So we already know, oh, and they're friends as well. But it's not like they're, 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 they're under sufferance. They're there just as the Baron's employees. No, he's, he's, they're, they're his gang. Yeah. Berthold makes it back in time. And the Turk honours his part of the bet, which was that the, the Baron can take as much treasure from the treasury as the strongest man can carry. But the strongest man is Albrecht, who is the strongest man in the world. So he takes everything. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing, and it's completely sincere. Yes, the strongest... The, the, whatever the strongest man can take. Okay, he is the strongest man, yeah. and he can take it all. And they, act, they, they they drop on the way out, they drop one gold coin, which Adolphus picks up, pops in the treasurer's pocket, and says, Oh, thanks, Squire. <laughs> and I think, oh, no, that should have been Eric Idle's line. <laughs> yes, 100%. <laughs> The Turk's having none of this, and he decides he sort of launches his army and says, Oh, attack. As the Baron says, that is how the war started. And we and as the as the as the cannons are firing in the Turk's courtyard, we cut back to the theatre. Cannons are firing on the theatre, everything's falling down. I have a question. Yes. Do we ever find out where the where all the treasure goes? No, we don't. Hmm. I imagine the, the Baron spends it on finery. That's the thing. You, you would have thought, you know, maybe invest it. <laughs> Maybe maybe put it in the bank. Well, that's that's the reasonable thing to do. Insurance. But that again, but that's that, again, that's it doesn't fit in with the world of the Baron's uh, outlook. And to be fair, it'd probably be quite a high interest rate based on the amount of gold he took. You know. It's, yeah, it would. Uh, quite, quite a high percentage, uh, to, depending on the bank that he went to. Mm. He probably traded it in for a, a kiss from Catherine the Great. Mm. Would we all? He's that kind of devil-may-care fellow, isn't he? Isn't that basically an escort kind of service? <laughs> I'm going to give you lots of gold for a kiss. I have a very innocent view on escorts. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. <laughs> how, do, how do babies work? I'm a ma- I'm a, how do babies work? <laughs> yeah, ch- yeah, child labour. <laughs> yeah, you like give them a rusk and then they'll dig out a ah, mine for you. Ah, oh, rusks. Rusks, Cowpoll and Ribena. Those are the days. <laughs> Fantastic cocktail. Um, Apple juice. As the, as the theatre is being struck by this, this gunfire, the Baroness of Hyde's backstage, and he's found by 
little Sally and he is shrouded by the angel of death mm. which is it's kind of a flying skeleton <laughs> I can't believe that would have been um, dismantled that must be somewhere yeah but I mean it's it's, it's, a, it's a it's a practical life-size effect it's I, I mean I assume it's an animatronic mm. because you can't fit a person in there because there's no room now you were saying you suspect that it may very well be just gathering dust in the basement of a of a place in Italy. Yeah, I, I can imagine that it's you know the, the prop store at Cinecitta Studios in Rome. It's probably just still there, along with bits of the set, costumes. I I really do sincerely wonder where all of these amazing props and these films and television productions are. I mean, I've always wondered where the the um, sandwich that crushed Dawn French and Young Ones went. <laughs> Where did that go? Was it a real sandwich? It was a big. Was it, was it actually? Well, I mean, was it was real? Was it big made, rubbers? Was it made of? Oh, it wasn't made of food. No, no, no. I don't. Know. That'd have been messy. No, no, because at one point, um, uh, Nigel Planer as Neil lifts up and goes, it's meat. It's got meat in it. Can't even eat it. Um, <laughs> he didn't say that bit, but yeah, no. Basically, it's it's meat. And yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's like made out probably like foam or obviously it can't be too heavy because obviously it's because although there's a trap door, I assume the effect because even if you, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one like comedy fan who sort of paused that sequence because it's quite it's that seamless. I mean, when the sandwich falls onto a fridge. I mean, you, it's, she clearly goes down a trap door, one would assume, under the stage, yeah. through the stage. But, yeah, I mean, it just it's very, very well done for a comedy series on BBC in the 1980s. Well, if it was foam rubber, then it would have just perished. Yeah. Someone so. must have taken that sandwich home. Was it big? It's you, haven't you? Well, they wouldn't have taken it home. It would have been gigantic. How are they going to smuggle it out of the room? What? In a giant sandwich box? I can legitimately confirm that larger things from the BBC have been smuggled out. And I'm not even exaggerating. I'm talking about blown-up pictures that were used in the backdrops of various shows. Ah, you can roll those up. I know a man who has a very large picture of a particular BBC figure of, the, of, his, of, his, of their time in his kitchen. I see. She takes up the whole wall. And it was rescued from a skip... Oh, well, that's different. That, was, that would have been already outside. Already outside, yes, but at the same time, I mean, it's not impossible to get the, the big things from the small things. Quite so. Another, another cinema limbo quote to go on a T-shirt. Um, the Angel of Death really reminded me of um, Guillermo del Toro. Not because he looks like him, but oh, it's, the kind of, it's the kind of thing that he would do, that kind of... The, the, the monsters of the world gothic creatures and such mm. it's a very del Toro thing and I think del Toro is in many ways Gilliam's successor but not as funny Gil- Gilliam del Toro well quite so quite so what if what if Terry Gilliam directed Pan's Labyrinth it would have been more entertaining it wouldn't have had that guy being stabbed in the face with a broken bottle or at least if he did it would have been funny yeah he would have used but it would have been Eric Idle um, Sally repels the angel and manages to revive the Baron who is he's tired of the world is that something do you reckon that's symbolic of, of youth shying that away shying yeah, death away yeah it's, it's she revives the Baron's spirit hmm 
and gives and rein, reinvests him with his zest for life and his sense of adventure. Inspires him to keep going. Exactly. But uh, even so, he says that there's, there's too much science in the world and there's no room for fantasy anymore. That's mm. very Gillian. Yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, the thing that the film of his that, that, that sparked in my mind just now was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, mm. where there is a monologue about the, the tide of the 60s, the tide of the counterculture, and how it swept across California. Yeah. And it only got so far. It got sort of just to like the hills outside Las Vegas, and that was where the tide broke. Yes. And it never reached any further than that. There you go. But Sally manages to persuade the Baron to, to do something, to help, to help the town. And he winds up manning a cannon and accidentally flying by cannonball, <laughs> of course, to the Turkish lines. Now, that, that's, a, that's a, a great image from, I think, the original stories. Yeah. But also from the 1943 film, because it was pr- produced under the auspices of Joseph Goebbels as the big fantasy epic of Nazi Germany. Now, have you, have you seen this? The, the German one? Mm. No, I haven't. Is it available? Is it? I believe it is. Um, it's surprisingly lacking in any political content, which is quite unusual for a film of that era, because normally they'd be all about how great Germany is and how fantastic white people are. I suppose when something is that sun-drenched in its own fascism or its own agenda it, it's sort of so far inside the cabal of its its intentions yeah. that you don't need to kind of elaborate on anything, well, it's well, just it's, there it's kind of, the, the film, that that version of the story is it's geared towards just being a successful film mm. and inspiring the audience Yeah, not in terms of you know <laughs> You know, Germany's great, we're going to win the war. But, you know, we can do it. They give them the can-do spirit. Yeah. Which apparently survives that. And a film is apparently highly watchable and highly entertaining, despite its provenance. Mm. I mean, it's unlike something like Triumph of the Will or Juice Us, which is a horrible concept of a film. Uh, have you seen Birth of a Nation? Which one? Because there's a new film called Birth of a Nation... Oh. I haven't seen either of them. I, well, there, there's a great um, thing called Mubi, M-U-B-I, mm. which is kind of like all the things that you don't get on Netflix. And they had they put Bath Nation on uh, the other the other week, and it was it was in it was in Blu-ray quality, and it was it was really fascinating to watch. That is over a hundred years old. It was just interesting to see. Yeah. And and for all intents and purposes, even though of course it is a even by today's standards, a, a film that is hard to watch. Uh, for all, from for a number of reasons, but it, you can't deny it, it's a fascinating thing to watch. It's a fascinating thing to see, yeah. and just to sit there and think this was filmed over a hundred years ago. I, I find this a lot with some items of media that they are fascinating in concept and they're fascinating to sort of study almost under glass or under a microscope, but they're not in and of themselves entertaining anymore. I'm sure that uh, by the time this is released. Um, the episode of Jeff Gates for Bruce, the excellent other podcast on this podcast network, uh, will have been uh, available where I feature talking about Pathfinders. One of many excellent other podcasts on the podcast one of, network. One of many, but so far it's the only one I've been on. I've yet to be advised on any of the others. 
Well, you can come on an episode of Podpit at some point, or, uh, or or maybe the talk show talk show, if you fancy... Uh, I know almost nothing about talk shows. In that case, it might be quite fun to um, throw you in the deep end. With, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll pick something. I'll pick something out, and we can kind of take a cinema limbo stance in it, because there is a... Well, not to deviate hugely off topic more than usual, but um, there is actually a, a film called... which was made for HBO called The Late... Oh, yes, the, the one about the... Um David Letterman, Jay Leno conflict when they about taking over from Johnny Carson. Yeah, the late yeah. shift. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting film. <laughs> yes, I, I I was on an edition of Jeffrey Gates of Proust talking about Pathfinders, the precursor to Doctor Who, like sort of creatively the precursor to Doctor Who, and I found said, oh, this is a very interesting item, and its its place in television history is undeniable, but it's really boring. Yeah, <laughs> and it's dated really badly. There's been this almost dialogue about how women are too silly for space. Mm. When you say space, as in going about going into space, women are, they can't be uh, an astronaut. Or uh, you know, there's not enough room in the, in the spacecraft for their vanity case. I think you just meant space generally, which I was mildly concerned. Mm. I thought, I thought that, that that is a very broad view. It's a series about the first man moon mission where they take a typewriter. Oh, what? Nothing else. A typewriter. Well, uh, including other things, they go dressed for uh, like a polar expedition wearing jumpers because it's you know it's a bit parky on the moon. And they took a typewriter, a television, not a TV monitor, a television, and a hamster. Why not? I mean, if you can. I mean, you know, basically, if you're going to build a shed on the moon. I know, it does. it, it is basically a grand day out without the jokes. Oh. I was really hoping that they land on the moon and they find, like, a sentient gas cooker. Grand day out. For me, that, that, is, that is a memory of the early 90s, cosy Christmas. Mm. Makes one have cheese and crackers. I saw it. When it was first shown in the UK, me too. I Christmas remember. Eve, nineteen ninety. That's and that aired on Channel Four. I was, I would have been six. Yeah, six years old. That's, uh, yeah, very uh, fond memory of that. It is. Ah, oh, not enough of those anymore. It's like that and Bernard and the Genie. Oh yeah, yeah. Why isn't that? A f- that's and now that Network has actually struck a deal with the BBC. Network DVD. Network DVD. Network ne- video. Network distribution. Network distribution. Um, they struck a deal with the BBC to get greater access to the BBC's archives. Oh. Hopefully, Bernard and the Genie will be it, one of the things that they will bring out because it, that is a very fine piece of work. It went out at one point, and uh, it did. Do, it does need to to come back out. Oh. Um, a charming, feel-good Christmas fantasy. Yeah. Written, written by Richard Curtis and starring Alan Cumming, Lenny Henry and Rowan Atkinson. And you get a lovely little glimpse of Piccadilly at Christmas in the early 90s, which is yeah. never a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I also like the fact that um, kind of a, a, a mild transition back into Baron Munchausen, but also the fact that I really hope that at some point they'll release Lenny Henry's Dreams, uh, which stars Bill Patterson more or less reprising a role that he grew familiar with from having been in The Singing Detective as a psychiatrist. Oh, yes, Dr. Gibbon. He's yeah. He plays a psychiatrist in the in Lenny Henry's dreams. Oh, I see. And it's and it's just fun. It's just a great. And it's it's very silly and very you know. Oh, I oh, <laughs> wish that was on DVD. But the thing is, um, when I was younger, I had this vision of potentially being a scriptwriter, and I worked on a script called Calnut's Reality, and it involved a psychic psychiatrist. I see. And I have no shame in admitting that that was directly influenced and inspired by Bill Patterson's role in not just the singing detective, but probably more predominantly uh, Lenny Henry's dreams. And yeah, it, oh, we, we should definitely we should definitely just 
at some point record us just going for, yeah. for an hour about various things. Um, well, speaking of dreams and fantasy, um, I think you could draw a parallel between the Baron and Terry Gilliam's other great aging fantasist, Don Quixote. Did you hear the news uh, as of recording today? That they're going to start shoot. They're going to make another crack at shooting Don Quixote later in the year. Uh, yeah, everyone's like, "All right, okay, <laughs> okay." Well, we'll believe it when it happens. Because I think the the main, uh, Terry Gilliam has been harboring this dream of producing a film version of Don Quixote, or a heavily tweaked version. I think with Sancho Panza being a time traveler from the present day, uh, he's been working on this project for many years. It was shut down about two thousand and two due to a, just a, a, a giant crowd of production problems. It almost got off the ground a couple of years ago with John Hurt, but then he was diagnosed with cancer. He has since managed to make a full recovery from cancer. It was, and it was pancreatic cancer, which is apparently one of the most... virulent's the wrong word, but one of the least likely you, that you recover from. Mm. Uh, John Hurt appears to be indestructible. <laughs> Good. Um, he's a lovely... He seems like a lovely man. He's a lovely man. And he just, he just, he's always seemed old, and he's just grown into himself. Now he's nearly 80. And, and if, you're, if you're a fan of John Hurt, or, or generally just kind of that world of... Uh, uh, Jarvis Cocker's Sunday service on BBC Six Music, uh, you can track most of them down somewhere. He had a lovely interview with John Hurt, and... Um, the following week, in fact, I believe, Jarvis Cocker used to do this thing where on the day that he recorded it, he would sort of look at the events that happened or birthdays or deaths that happened on the day that, he, that it was being released. So I sent an email in saying, I was thinking maybe you should open the, the next show with um, the theme, John Morris's theme from The Elephant Man, David Lynch film, um, because not is it only... Uh, on the day the following this Sunday forthcoming Sunday is the um, day of the, the death of John Merrick a hundred and something years ago but also uh, you had John Hurt on the show the other week who of course played hmm. and he did he opened it anyway oh. and there's a great little clip uh, which I've saved uh, well I say great little clip it's a great little clip for me as a narcissist um, where, where he goes and uh, George Grimwood uh, <laughs> it's great and I was just like yay oh that made me so happy Meanwhile, back in the town, the Baron, having managed to get back via Cannonball, has plotted to escape and seek help by constructing a hot air balloon made of women's knickers. Yes. And I, I still stand by the fact that I think it would be funnier if literally just said to everyone, I need all of your clothes, and you have this whole nude town just waving by to him cheerily. I think it could have been a great sight gag, personally. Well, uh, in that sequence, we were also get a, a glimpse of Uma Thurman who is part of the theatrical company. Lovely Uma Thurman. And she will also be returning later in the movie. Yes. Of course. And honestly I mean you can't picture Oliver Reed and Uma Thurman being an item in real life but it, it's the only circumstance in any in any reality that this kind of makes sense. Well she was married to Gary Oldman. Don't forget. <laughs> yeah, Gary Oldman the Oliver Reed of today. No. Oh, there was there couldn't there couldn't be another Oliver Reed. I always get kind of confused between. I, mean, I say get confused between, but I mean, Gary Oldman and Tim Roth for me, they've always been kind of hard to distinguish. Well, it's, I think it's because they were both kind of discovered by Alan Clark. Mm. Coincidentally, there's an Alan Clark season running at the BFI right now. Yeah, you um, you think they you'd think they'd appreciate the uh, the plug. Yeah. 
Um, well, they do. They're just not listening. Yeah. Sally's looking for adventure as well. So she stows away on the hot air balloon. Yeah. And they, they get caught in a storm. And they, the balloon cuts free. It's very Wizard of Oz, isn't it? Is, it? it is very Wizard of Oz. And the, 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 the basket of the balloon is actually a, a ship. It's the ship from the set of the play. It falls down to the sea, and there's a beautiful transition where it, the sea turns into sand. And just, the ship is just drifting through sand. And we discover that they have landed on the moon. Very nice. And uh, as the Baron sort of picks himself up and recovers himself... He's younger. The adventure, the the grand spirit of excitement has rejuvenated him. Yeah. And he's young again. I'd be severely wrong in saying, I mean, is that you have these allusions to cinema from a, a fair while ago, and then you look at maybe, and you consider that there must be a bit of a Melier kind of vibe. Oh, yeah, very much so. It It feels... It feels like that. It feels like it's like a director of the past working with modern resources. Do you feel that Munchausen as a whole, and I'm sure there'll, there'll be other comparisons along the way, but do you feel that Munchausen as a whole potentially really draws upon a lot of class? I mean, not classic cinema, but literally early cinema? The, the early silent cinema, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, Georges Méliès, definitely. Mm. Because, because he loved fantasy and, and very early visual effects, using it sort of editing as a way of trickery. Mm in a way that cinema had grown out of kind of stage magic. Yeah. But there's definitely a feel to that. It's, it's about the spirit of imagination and a kind of unrestrained creativity. Yeah. And that definitely feeds into early cinema where there weren't any rules. You could do anything you wanted. So, yeah, you can, you can send someone to the moon and it lands in the man in the moon's eye. And it was just this, this unrestrained frenzy. And that's definitely, I think, that certainly that feels very Gilliam-esque that it's the unrestrained imagination is what's so powerful and so important. Do you find that Gilliam has continued that for the most part throughout his career, or do you feel that he may have... Because, I mean, if you look at, for example, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, it's a very different take on the concept of imagination. It is, and it's, it's actually a very faithful adaptation of the book. Absolutely. Um, but it's, it's, it's a much darker, cynical take because it's about a world where this kind of craziness is already being squeezed out. Yeah. Even though it's only 1971, the hippie dream is already dead. And it's just left to the likes of Raoul Duke and his lawyer consuming insane amounts of drugs in Las Vegas and causing trouble wherever they go. And that's what's left of counterculture. And yet remains to be a story about imagination in many respects. Because we don't know how much of it is actually happening and how much of it is just hallucinations. Yeah. And which kind of reflects on Munchausen in the same respect. We we kind of don't we don't know what to believe, which is the whole point, I yeah. think. And the, and the point is, I think, in the case of Munchausen, it doesn't matter. Hmm because reality and fantasy are equally important. It's like the whole thing about bread and roses. It's in the delivery. Exactly. Yeah. As long as you have imagination, as long as you have creativity in your life, and that's playing an important part, that's the, that's the crucial thing. Yeah. Ultimately, it's, it's, a sto- it's a story. Of course, it's a story. But the nature of the story is what's so powerful, and not the story itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Good. Because I wasn't sure that it did. So as the, the ship is sailing across the moon, they arrive at a, a kind of a model town mm. of flats. And it, remi- it really made me think of Gilliam's animations. Sure. The, the, the cutouts, except the cutouts are now moving around around the characters. 
Yeah. That seemed like the apotheosis of his animation style. And Robin Williams. Well, uh, he's credited as Ray DeTuto, so I don't know where you got the idea that it's Robin Williams. Well, I'm, I, all I know is, is that I, I read that further down the line he said he was very happy with how it turned out, and where was he career-wise at that point, Robin Williams? He was doing very well. It was between Good Morning Vietnam and Dead Poets Society, so he was a big name comedy-wise. He was establishing himself as a dramatic actor, of considerable prowess. Yeah. So to land him for this role I, I was a big get. But he was definitely a friend of the Pythons anyway. So it's let's hmm. like bringing in a celebrity power to fill a vacancy because originally the role was going to be played by Sean Connery. Which I, I really think, I'm really glad that he didn't do it. It's a comedy part. Yeah. Connery is not, I mean, actually, in fairness, the s- same year he did Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which kind of is a sort of comedy role. Oh, he's great in that. And he's really good. He's very, very funny. But that's, yeah. a, but that's a very well-written character, and it really feels like a real person, mm. because it's so really, really well-written. And here, King of the Moon is just this insane cartoon character. Yeah. So it's perfect for Robert Williams, who was a human cartoon. Yeah. When, uh, when he wants to be. Or he could be a great dramatic actor. Dead Poets Society is one of my favourite films. And with the Gideon connection, The Fisher King. Yeah. Which was after It was this? after this, yeah. It was yeah. early 90s. I know it's a slight deviation, but in terms of Robin Williams, you know, in retros- retrospect, I mean, obviously he's not going to be making any more films anytime soon. Uh, although mm. it's with certain uh, departed actors, you do find suddenly three, four years later down the line, they go, oh yeah, here's a film that is in the... One of those has actually just come out called Boulevard, which I th- was, I think, I think the last one left yeah. in the can. It wasn't the last thing he worked on, but um, yeah, that sort of came and went. Yeah, I, I, what would you say was? I, I have a I have a two two part question. First question: What is, in your opinion, Robin Williams' greatest film comedy role, comedic role? And second part of the question: What do you think is his best film dramatic role? Well, his greatest dramatic performance is one hour photo. His greatest dramatic film, I think, his greatest film full stop is Dead Poets because I absolutely love Dead Poets. But his performance in One Hour Photo is absolutely extraordinary I was actually I was lucky enough to see it at the Fright Fest mm. the uh, horror film festival and it was the English premiere because it had already screened at Edinburgh yeah and it's he the, the level of control it actually reminds me of um, the new Maigret sure uh, the Rowan Atkinson as the French detective mm-hmm. and um, in that obviously Rowan Atkinson is you know, the, the, the rubber faced funny man yeah. And he has he's very, very carefully tamped down all his sort of ticks and quirks and things to play a, a very serious, straight-faced character. And the problem with that is that he's made him really boring. Maigret is actually a very dull character. Oh, okay. And you can see Atkinson is really... Tr- he's trying to do it as straight as he can to make it serious and sensible, do justice to the thing, and not be showy. And he's succeeding, but he's doing it too well because he's not giving the character any life he doesn't the Maigret himself doesn't seem like an interesting person does it have the potential of being sort of ITV's new Poirot well Poirot is quite an eccentric character yeah and I mean I don't really know many of the Poirot stories I, did, I only watched well to date there's only been one film broadcast they're broadcasting another one later in the year I wasn't impressed by the story mm. it wasn't particularly interesting it could just be that, that that's, a, that's a duff one well, um, because they're apparently about 90 Maigret books. Oh, great, okay. I mean, so there's potential for it to be a franchise if it succeeds. But I s- Oh, yeah, it's potential to be a, to be a long-running series. 
but it depends on what kind of reaction it's going to get because it had, did have quite mixed reviews and they, a lot of them did focus on how stiff and serious Rowan Atkinson was and how hard it was to become engaged with the character because he's just not an interesting person. Does he have a sidekick? Because I feel that there's Tony Robinson could... He does. He, he's a, he does have a sidekick, but he's um, just another detective yeah, played, by, played by Sean Dingwall and was, again, kind of just a, another character who was not particularly interesting there's no yeah it wasn't, it wasn't it was very it was very handsomely made a lot of care got into it Rowan I mean prop, fair play to Rowan Atkinson he's clearly trying really hard to make this work yeah but the fact that he's trying so hard squeezes the life out of it he needed to have something some element to the audience latch onto and the only thing that's there is the fact that Megre wears a hat and smokes a pipe and that's kind of it. So yeah. does so does Monsieur Hulot. Yeah. But he does lots of other stuff too. And there needed to be... Actually, that's, that's weird because Rowan Atkinson has cited Jacques Tati as a great influence on him. Mr. Bean. For Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean's Holiday. Mr. Bean's Holiday is a, just a giant homage to Jacques Tati, but not as good because Jacques Tati was a genius. Mm. Um, Jacques Tati's film Playtime is definitely on the list for Cinema Limbo because it's a giant epic comedy and yeah. it's unlike anything I've ever seen. But Robin Williams in one hour photo he, he gives that character life yeah. even though he's very still and very calm and very cold but you see so much of his interior world very tragic character yeah the, the sort of the reveal at the end of why he's the way he's I thought well it's kind of unoriginal and a little bit trite but, I thought, but it makes sense but it works in the delivery That's what yeah it, yeah Robin Williams makes it justified in his reaction yeah yeah so that's that's his greatest performance and it, of course it wasn't recognised by the by sort of by, well, it was, it was by many critics, but not by sort of awards bodies because it was a bit too weird because he's playing a creepy stalker. Well, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of his later films, I mean, Insomnia mm. as well, and World's Greatest Dad. Yeah, I haven't actually seen that. And uh, there's another, The Angriest Man in Brooklyn, which I'd like to see. Yeah, it, it's yeah. I mean, he he chose a few more um, darker roles. By that point, he was very very secure in his career, so he was able to experiment and look at unusual projects yeah because at the same time he was doing a night at the museum well yeah I mean you know but that's the thing you've got to kind of you've got to pay the bills but yeah but, but also I mean they're big franchise films and they work and they have an audience and yeah uh, it's, you know. it, it's sort of one, one for me one for the studio I think Chris Evans of superhero fame has that attitude now he's doing Captain America movies mm. and he likes and he said he's, he enjoys playing Captain America but he's the only other thick work he's doing is small personal things that he wants to do, like Top Gear. Hysterical. But he um, he he wrote and directed a film recently, an accident, and I think that's the only film apart from Captain America he's done in like the last five years. Like one whole series of um, TFI Friday. I'm going to come over there and spifflicate you. That's from Calvin and Hobbes. No, it's in the Beano. As far as I'm concerned. Is that still going? The Beano? The Dandy's gone. The Dandy has shut down, yeah, but the Beano's still running. Desperately Unfunny Dan. Have you seen that from the vi- from Viz? I have, yeah. Don't... I, I think on the, on the... F off, Dan, you're not funny anymore. <laughs> the, on the um, uh, podcast we recorded last night, I did talk at length about my plans for a Beano Town cinematic universe. I, I think that'd be great. I know. Well, listen to the podcast and you'll find out why. Whenever that comes out. Whenever we are assuming that is actually coming out. It was it was a lot of fun to record. Yeah. Um, but Robin Williams' greatest comic performance 
Um, I haven't seen Mrs. Doubtfire all the way through. I really do think that's overrated, to be honest. Oh. It, it, but the thing is, because he's great in it. He's really good in it. And there's a lot of pathos. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of... He's great. I mean, he's Robin mm. Williams. He's great. But it, it's not It's not the best. I, I don't like the film. I, I don't like... It's a, you think it's maybe a bit too mawkish? It's... What, M-O-R-K? Mawkish. Oh, yeah. Mawkish and Mindy-ish. It's sort of taking a character who's forced into a desperate situation to do something, and, it, you know, and it's just... It has severe undertones of tragedy. And, yeah, you know, I'm not saying that's... I mean, don't get me wrong, hundreds of thousands of comedies are drenched in tragedy in, in the base of it. But I just, it's, I don't like the film. It's not one that I've watched, I would say maybe I've watched twice because I had, at the time, mm. on video, I, it's, it's certainly for me, it's the least rewatchable Robin Williams film. Really? Yeah, I, re- I really think it's overrated. And that's not to say that Robin Williams is fantastic. But I find the premise and the concept kind of dull. It's there's nothing that's really rewatchable about it for me. Hmm. Hello, kitties. Yeah, great. Thanks. Done. See, I'm smiling already. It's just well, it's because I'm doing. But, but I don't know. Um, he's. I mean, it's. If I put that question onto myself, the the hook's fun because that's a transition. Hook. Yeah. Hook is an evolution of a character, whereas I found. Mrs. Doubtfire is kind of a desperate thing of a character's, you know, a character desperately trying to get in touch with his kids. It's like what to dress so dress up as a, dresses up as an old woman. If you yeah. narrow it down to that, it's kind of upsetting. Now, one of the uh, ideas that the King of the Moon rambles about, firstly, that he is evolved beyond needing a body because he's now just a head floating around mm. and he just he does describe himself as the king of everything which in Italian is re di tutto which is where the, uh, the character's name comes from but he describes himself describes himself as having created himself yeah and that made me think of the idea of it uh, being within a story the nature of a story that the, the storyteller creates the, the characters well, it's God of your own universe, isn't it? And the thing is, is that it's then the philosophical question of if you're God of your own universe, if you're the creator of your own universe, then where do you come from? Exactly. Which, in theory, presumably, with this character, has driven him mad, that concept. Maybe he was like that already, though. He's kind of a crazy guy. Wild and crazy. No, that's Steve Martin. I know. Wild and crazy guy. But uh, th- having... Uh had a previous altercation with the Baron he locks him and Sally up in a cage and they find in the little gutter underneath a very aged Berthold yes. who was furious at having been left there for 20 years hello squire <laughs> he's still Mr Cheeky <laughs> yeah. nah just kidding crucifixion really his weird gusty hair and with the assistance of the Queen they managed to make a getaway pursued by the king and a three-headed bird made of clockwork things. Del Toro again, because he loves clockwork and all that stuff. Yeah. Is that steampunk? I don't think so. Do you reckon all the steampunks, all the steampunks listening, all the fans, they uh, they, they all just listen? They go, yeah, Robin Williams in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen on a clockwork bird was the origins of our steampunk. The funny it? thing is, we talk about this on another podcast we've recorded about the origin of steampunk. I can't remember which. I think it was The Keep. Oh, okay. Because that's early, that's early 80s. <clears throat> and um, 
the idea of kind of the origins of the whole steampunk aesthetic was about the same time. And, we spe- and Chris and I speculate over the influence that the Keep may have had. I always say that the origins certainly fall for me in, in sort of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine steampunk because it's a man in a suit in a clockwork device travelling in time. But at the time that was perfectly reasonable but steampunk as, a, as the, the nature of it being a very retro thing they're going to say something horribly blase is Doctor Who the original steampunk? no it, it was uh, Captain Nemo <laughs> just really really upset Jules Verne predates Everyone. H.G. Wells of course yeah well there's a long going rivalry yeah the ghosts are fighting it's um, Paula Tompkins plays H.G. Wells in um, the Dead Authors podcast <laughs> and he hates Jules Verne <laughs> It's like, I always win. I'm here, he's not. Well, they make their escape from the moon by climbing up to the top of the crescent and then knotting a rope. Where do they get the rope from? Or do they knot it from something? It, you know, it's just one of many things that doesn't make any sense. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure I would have put that in my notes if I felt that it was relevant. But they tie a rope to the, the corner of the moon, they climb down, they ran out of rope, so they cut a bit off the top and tie it onto the bottom. And then, in Wiley Coyote style, mm. they realise eventually that you can't do that. <laughs> and it's the only—it's only when they realise that suddenly it becomes a reality. Exactly. Yeah. As long as imagination is unencumbered, the rules of imagination are in control. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who can relate, but I find certainly when it comes to dreams that when I'm, I'm consciously aware in a dream that it's a dream. It wakes me up because it's, it, it draws me away from the reality of the imagination. When I suddenly become aware of the fact that this is not real, my mind wakes up and I wake up by extension. I, 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 can, I, I find that quite a, an interesting thing where the idea is, is that you, you, you're in the middle of a dream and, and suddenly if you, if you can suddenly play God in that, it takes away that dimension of imagination. It's because you become bound by those rules. Yeah. But it, 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 it's binding the world of your dream to the reality of your real-world awareness. And by definition, it's self-destructive as well, because you just if you wake up from that, it's your mind going, right, no, not playing this anymore. We're out. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. But uh, the Baron, Sally, and Berthold... Fall, fall back to Earth. They fall into Mount Etna, where they find King Vulcan, King of the Underworld, Ollie. arms arms manufacturer to everybody, played by Ollie Reed. Oliver Reed, the Human Barrel. I love Oliver Reed. He's always watchable, no matter what he's doing, even if it's wandering off the script or Tommy or Tom. Tommy, or in which he Tommy? Well, he's <laughs> Tommy. No, it's, that's a great film. I I hate Tommy. No, it, it's great. It's right. great. I really don't like Tommy. His singing in that is highly questionable, but it's really him singing, at the very least. It's not dubbed by somebody else. Okay, uh, like maybe maybe I'm wrong about Tommy. Uh, maybe we need to re- maybe I need to watch it in a more critical. Maybe we need to talk Tommy at some point. I think it. I think it would qualify for cinema limbo because it's. It's a popular movie. It was Oscar nominated. It was a hit. The album, the, the album Tommy, is regarded as a masterpiece and a classic. I oh no, I I, I love the, the musical. The original record, yeah. No, no, don't get me wrong. I love the musical. I love the the soundtrack. But the film, 
I, I just remember fl flicking over, like, I think it was BBC Two late one night, going, what on earth is this? And just getting slightly angry. Have you seen many other Ken Russell films? Because they are all like that. Well, yeah, I've seen The Devils. I, lo I love Oliver reading The Devils, going, he's great in The Devils. Would you like to confess your sins? He's... That's, that's the thing. He, he would just... <laughs> when he felt like it, he would just ham it up and mess around. Oh, he's great. But when he was given really good material, he said, oh, OK, now I'm, I'll, I'll take this seriously. And in The Devils, he's, do it, he's taking it seriously. Have you seen marvellous, marvellous documentaries? A very long... I don't know how many parts it was, like nine, ten parts. felt longer. The Hammer Films documentary series that was narrated by Oliver Reed in the early 90s. I remember Late Night Channel 4, it used to be the thing. I recall that. I don't think I've ever seen it. Marvellous. It's really good. Uh, I don't know where I'd find it, but it's really, really good. It might be included on um, some of the home video releases of Hammer movies, because that's, yeah. some of the extras on those are pretty good. Yeah, like, there's, a, there's a nice three-disc set of Curse of Frankenstein, which cool. I'm quite tempted by. Cool. Well, that was my introduction to Oliver Reed. I think as a child was um, was this, that was that narrative. No, at the time, of course, I didn't know it was him, but uh, I just I just had this sort of golden era kind of VHS tape collection where it's sort of the Dark Crystal recorded off the BBC, followed by the Charlie Chaplin season that was on Ch Christmas Channel 4 early 90s followed by a few episodes of the Hammer Horror documentary mm. narrated by Oliver Reed on a lazy it's just ins oh oh <laughs> it's gonna make that noise forever oh. Vulcan and his men oh, well actually his men are on strike the Cyclopses are on strike Ooh, bit of politics yeah I know and uh, one of the things that they're currently working on is a nuclear missile mm-hmm he describes how oh yeah, oh yeah. And for, for, for no reason at all Vulcan has a northern accent just because it's Oliver Reed and you can't say no to him so, oh, you're, all you have to do is press this one button and your enemies and all their houses and all their families and all their farms and all everything just disappear there's a, there's a silence from a moment and Berthold, Berthold Eric Hall says oh where's the fun in that <laughs> I remember that yeah that stinks out I do you feel that all the people that he encounters more or less in some capacity, all these different kind of variants of characters, are representative of different reasons as to why we've reached the age of reason? They're, they're, all, they're all different elements that have equated to where we've reached that point in the present day in Munchausen. So you have the, the Turk, the King of the Moon, and Vulcan. Yeah. I see what you mean, that they're restrictive forces... And, and, and sort of later on in, in the sort of the, the sort of the, the third or fourth segment, we get to the fish, and that's just a force of na literally a force of nature itself. But Vulcan is about sort of the importance of war and it's, the importance of commerce, almost. And the thing is, is that the the adventure. It's interesting for me that the adventure, by definition, is defined by antagonism. That you need a conflict to to create adventure, and yet at the same time. It's the own human tendencies of the Baron himself. Greed. Greed, ultimately, mm. takes the gold. Must, you know, is in a seductive manner with Vulcan's... Good lady wife. Good lady wife. Uh, you know, even with the moon as well, is that he's, he's sort of, it's, it's a seductive element. His, his seduction of the, of the queen of the moon. Yeah, it, it's all about greed and sin. And ultimately, it's, it's what, what fuels adventure from the sounds of things is you need a conflict, uh, an antagonist to, to kind of provoke that conflict. And, then, and yet the, the, reason, the reasoning is that the only freedom you'll get from that adventure to move further on into the narrative is by your own perseverance of sin. 
Yes, you have to you have to cause trouble. You have to create the conflict. Mischief. Yeah. It's said that the, the source of all drama is conflict. Mm. You can't have a drama without something happening, obviously. Mm. But as you say, it's the Baron... And something to react to. Exactly. And it's the, the Baron who starts it. He starts the war. He seduces people's wives. He's a nightmare. He's not, a good, he's not actually a good <laughs> person, not, really. But he, he's charming. But the thing is, when he, he causes all these troubles, but when other people suffer... He steps in and he helps them. So he helps the people in the town because, well, I started this war. I will help you. So what, what, what we're saying is we're taking someone who goes into various degrees of reality and circumstance, travels around with Avengers, usually with, with companions, usually charms his way out of a situation. Hmm, he sounds a bit familiar. I don't, I don't know what The doctor does not go around seducing people's wives. He's a bit of a shagger. No, he isn't. Isn't he? No. Oh... Isn't he? Take that back. <laughs> Doctor Who is He's a, not. He's Doctor no. Who is a there's shagger. A certain, there's sometimes a certain romantic frisson, but it's in the original series, it was very rare. I'm not saying William Hartnell's version of Doctor Who. There was, there was a William Hartnell story where there's, there's a sweet little romance he has with a lady in Aztec times, and she thought that he was proposing marriage. But he wasn't. He just made her a cup of cocoa. <laughs> Which well, in Aztec culture oh. was apparently the equivalent. Cocoa? Yeah. In the Aztec times? Yes. Well, I never... But at the same time, though... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, I... Well, I no, I, I love a bit of cocoa, but I wouldn't... If you look, if you made me cocoa, I wouldn't think you're coming on to me. Well, no, because we're not in Aztec times. No. That would just be crazy. Uh, unless we were... Unless we were this, on, isn't, this isn't the Crystal Maze. Exactly. I was going to say, unless we were on set. Well, to be fair, it's still happening. Crystal Maze. I know. I'm Whoa. very excited about are you, that. Are you, have you signed up? I would, but it's about £60. <laughs> oh, really? Oh. Well, per head, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. Hmm. And Richard O'Brien is involved. I believe that he may have recorded some video segments. I I would love to meet Richard O'Brien. I really think it, you could just have a lovely chat with him. And the thing is, he'll, he'll bring his guitar. He's a nice guy. Mm. You just get the impression. Now, in the volcano, yes. they find Albrecht, who has finally found his calling acting as a waitress. Am I right in saying that he he he's quite happy there? He seems to be. Because he's in an environment where he isn't strong, or he, by comparison, because there's Vulcan and all the Titans, and they're all incredibly powerful. And he is the, the little weak, gentle one who has to wear a pinny and pours people tea and makes little cakes. Weird comparison, but it instantly comes to mind in this particular scenario. Blues Brothers approaching band members to get the band back together and they go to the restaurant. I don't know why that just came to mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that kind of... Well, they are getting the band back together. Yeah. It, 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 are, you, are we basically agreeing that The Avengers of Baron Chalice is a retelling of the Blues Brothers? No, because it predates the, the Blues Brothers. No, it doesn't. The specific story... Oh, yeah. The events of Baron Munchausen is original. No, of course. But it's inspired by all these old stories. Like the Blues Brothers. But the idea of getting the band back together, I don't think that's that doesn't originate with the Blues Brothers. No, but that's I mean, that's where it was, you know. They could have done a new Beatles movie in the late seventies that was like that. Oh, help again. Help again. Uh, I help. What did you think of help? Um it's fine. It's a bit too self-consciously zany, and I don't think it helps that most of the cast were stoned and were just doing whatever they wanted while the cameras were running. I'd prefer it to Hard Day's Night, although I really would like to see, and I really would be very happy to discuss this from a first-time perspective, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Carts Club band 
film. Oh, the one that they're not in. The one with George Burns and the Bee Gees and all sorts of people. George Burns and Frankie Howard together at last. I'm really... I, I'm actually excited from you just saying that. I, I need to see this film. <laughs> Have you seen uh, Magical Mystery Tour? Yes, a long time ago. I've got it on VHS. I have it on DVD, but I haven't got around to watching it. I'd be interested to see it, because I really like the album. I have it on rental VHS. Wow, chunky. Mm. Oh, yeah, and I have I have uh, the Ruttles on rental VHS as well. Your name is Ken Rose, and I claim my five pounds. It's a joke that no one will understand. Bar one. We are introduced as well to Vulcan's good lady wife, Aphrodite. <laughs> Played by Uma Thurman. Now, of course, when we're first introduced to her, it is an exact replica of a painting. Botticelli's Venus, yeah. So why isn't she Venus? Because it's Italy. Yeah. No, hang on, Aphrodite's Greek. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're Greek. Because um, Vulcan... Is, no, Vul- no, hang on. Vulcan and Zeus aren't the same... Per- person. They're not the same no. figure, are they? Well, Vulcan so, is closer so, to Mars in, in Greek mythology. So who's Jupiter? I don't know. All right. It's been a while. Because Aphrodite, a Aphrodite is Greek. So if we assume that Vulcan... Greek, yeah, Vulcan and... Yeah, Vulcan must be the Greek version of... No, it's Ares, isn't it? The Greek version of Mars is Ares. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. I can't remember who, who it is. But I know it's Vulcan because they're in a volcano. Something we can agree on, though. Something we all know for sure, that Uma Thurman, as, a, as an appearance, as a, as a as an, as a, introduction... A, as an introduction, as an entrance... Bloody hell. That's quite an entrance. That's up there with Jessica Rabbit, isn't it, really? I mean... <laughs> in, terms of, <laughs> in terms of introductions to... A lady character. S- seductive female temptresses. And with little birds come in with, oh, uh, with draperies of cloth. Not even birds, I believe. They are kind of pretty much disturbing-looking cherubs that you see for a split second. Oh, yes. Wow. Yes, they really are. No, I remember this. Yes. They are kind of very... You see them very quickly, but they are basically really disturbing little rubber little cherubs, and it's very upsetting. But uh, the Baron and... You don't notice those. <laughs> the Baron and... Uh, Aphrodite is immediately rather taken with each other. And, um... Is she happy? I don't think she's happy. Well, that, that, no, I've noticed that Aphrodite and Vulcan do have a weird relationship because she and the Baron go into the, the waterfall room and dance and the, the others follow and Vulcan is clearly somewhat put out by this. Yeah, it, it goes very Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. You know what I mean? Yeah, watch out for fizzy lifting drinks. Yes, yeah. But as they're, as they're dancing around, Vulcan says... Nice, isn't it? We've just had it done. <laughs> it's very odd. Barely restrained. And Vul- Vulcan is basically covered in hair and looks like a little caveman. And he steams out of his ears. And his he? steam comes out of his ears. And Bertolt tries to sort of distract him and calm him down by dancing. Yeah. And basically another excuse for Eric Idle to just mess around doing a silly dance. Th- th- yeah, that, that part... Um that part seems very strange. I mean, the thing is, I can kind of understand why it's necessary at this yeah, point. Well, I can dance. Yeah, watch this. <laughs> it's so odd. That, that's a really, honestly, that's a really weird part of this already strange film. Well, it, it gives a bit of balance to it because rather than the scene of, of the Baron and Aphrodite dancing, that's, that's sort of nice, but we need a counterbalance to that. So we have Eric Idle messing around. Yeah. And Sally, Sally saying, Baron, you know, I'm glad you're having a good time. What about the town? The town is absolutely fine. Cut back to the town. Battering rat knocking down the door. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it, it did, I mean, that whole sequence, now that you mention it, is a, is a strange element because it's, it's, you've got the main character just, just really just doing everything for himself. He's very narcissistic in that respect. He's, He's mostly self-interested. And, self-indulgent, and, yeah. And, I mean, when they find Berthold in, um, in the cage on the moon, he does say, you know, you, you left me here. Mm. You just went off and left me. Yeah. Yeah, you get, you get impressions that this guy's a bit of a dick. But he's so charming and charismatic. He's hard not he's hard not to like because there's just a, a sparkle about him, just a little devil make hair glint in his eye. His friends are having to compensate for what he's doing wrong. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, Eric Idle's character comes off much better than him at this point. Because he's like, look, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to ease the situation. Yeah, I'm just trying to cut cut the t- and and he encourages Vulcan to dance as well. And Vulcan just sort of jumps up and down on the spot awkwardly. Yeah, and, and again because it's just Oliver Reed doing it, it's immediately funny. Yeah, it's so odd. And then you have the voice the voice of reason, which is Sarah Polly in this particular circumstance, yeah. Sally, going. Uh, yeah, we were supposed to be rescuing the town. Yeah, yeah. C- can you maybe get off the ceiling? Dancing on the ceiling. Mm, what a feeling. But uh, Vulcan decides that enough is enough, yeah. and he throws them all into a whirlpool. Yes, yeah. That go through the centre of the earth. But before we leave them entirely, we see that she, Aphrodite and Vulcan, they do have a bit of a weird relationship that she seems to have deliberately provoked his jealousy. Yes. That um, it's a kind of, just a very subtly laid out, the kind of power dynamic they have that you know, she... She does love him, but she, it's like she likes to get him a little bit riled up. And then they have an audience just humming in the background, if I remember rightly. In the volcano? Yeah. Of the, the, the striking cyclopses? Don't all the people surround them and go, mm-hmm. I think they do, yeah. You know, yeah. It's, um, it, it's a strange one. But, I mean, the thing is, is that... Uh, do you think that maybe we could... Because you, you were asking initially about where do you think this Age of Reason city is. Yeah. Do you reckon you can kind of geographically figure out where it is on the basis of how, where, how the narrative goes? Because you have them going up to the moon, they land in Mount Etna, they're thrown into the whirlpool and come out to the other side of the Earth. Yeah, which is then found to be not that far from the town. But that would mean... But it also has to be near Turkey. But if it was over a day, it would have rot- the, the moon would have rotated. It, the Earth would have rotated. Or the but moon. No, but they're, no, but they land in Mount Etna, yeah. and then, then they go through and they come out the other side of the world. What's on the other side of Mount Etna? Um, the Pacific Ocean. So why, w- why would Turkey be invading Mexico? Maybe they should. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, no, don't. No, no, don't. They've got, they've got their own issues. But, but the thing is, I do like... There's a linking element between uh, Time Bandits and Adventures of Baron Chausen because there's that great bit where, we're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in, in Time Bandits. I think that, like much of the story, it's, it's a world of fantasy. Mm. Wherever Turkey is invading, there wouldn't be people with the last name of Sultan Jackson, for example. Mm. So, Is this the real life? I'm not going to engage is with you. This just fantasy. <laughs> but they are dropped through the centre of the world, Cordial. and they and they arrive in the ocean with music that is redolent of jaws, and they see an island in the distance. But then the island rears up, and it's a giant fish, and it eats them. Yes, which is a whole other story that's just been sort of in, in included into this. Yeah, it's. I think it's the. Um, 
the third phase of the story because it does neatly divide into about three, three or four half hours. You have the yeah. you have the you have the Turkish harem, you have the moon, you have the volcano, and then you have the fish, and then the climax. Yeah. So it, that, I mean, it's no never-ending story. No, well, that went on forever. Yeah. Did you did you like never-ending story? I mean, just in comparison to eighties fantasy. Well, it's a children's film, so you kind of have to adjust the way you're watching it. It's very bleak for I mean, it's I mean, very German. Well, we have to bear in mind that it is a German film. Like Return to Oz, Wolfgang Peterson. I don't know. That's not Wolfgang Peterson, isn't it? No, it's Walter Murch. Ah, same thing. But the thing it's is, it's really not. Begin with W. But the, the thing is, though, is that but the Return to Oz is very. I mean, these Return eight- to Oz is really dark and weird. But there's also you know the Dark Crystal. Oh, which is goodness. Jim Henson that's really dark and weird there was that trend for weird dark fantasy the, yeah. black, the black cauldron even the yeah Disney animation I mean it, that kind of it was a great era for that and I feel that Gilliam kind of had sort of three strikes on it and by three strikes I don't mean three strikes and you're out I mean yeah, three attempts yeah three cracks at it three cracks at it and um, Jamberwocky is a film I haven't seen properly that's something I need to revisit but in terms of the trilogy Time Bandits Brazil and because what Jerry Walker seventy nine eighty seventy seven seventy seven oh right it was his first solo directing job oh that makes sense even the meaning of life I mean if you take that as an adult fantasy which is basically what it is in terms of didn't direct it no but I mean in terms of that 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 tone that, oh, right. that fancy tone in terms of the I mean that that's a very there's Excalibur as well which was obviously not Gilliam at all but it feels like that's if Gilliam wants to do something totally dead straight. It would look like that, and that's, that's the story of King Arthur. And connects back to Return to Oz, because um, Nicole Williams plays, I believe, Merlin? Yeah, he plays Merlin and the Gnome King. <laughs> and the Gnome King. And I had the absolute pleasure of his time um, over a course of years. Uh, I used to work in a, a bar in Chislehurst in uh, Kent, in the UK. In the UK. <laughs> in, in the world. In, in the woods, incognito. In Earth. And uh, he was one of the nicest people and oh. we had some amazing conversations and uh honestly re- really nice guy uh, i couldn't share half barely any of the oh. anecdotes the but 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 yeah genuinely um it was something that i still use um because uh, he passed away and uh, something i still use very much you know you always ask how he was doing when he come down you know for a coffee at the bar you go yeah breaking even breaking and he had this very kind of slight although he's uh, you know he had a very slight american accent very very mm. slight but you know, I'm breaking even. You know, but he could do any accent. He was great. For anyone who has any interest in investigating into the origins of uh, the Gnome King or Merlin, should investigate a young Nicole Williamson reading very despairing poetry on a talk show in the '60s. That's on YouTube. It's a wonderful clip. But yeah, it, something just about the '80s and fantasy generally, and. That's the thing is that is that what I like about Avengers by Winchester, certainly the fact it was coming out to the end of this period. Yeah. It, it's kind of like a best of. Yeah, it it feels like it's a kind of summation of that era. I mean it's a, in some ways it's a very 80s movie because it's uh, we think of the 80s of the era of Reagan and Thatcher of rampant capitalism, of warmongering, of of the Cold War almost boiling over. And here is a story. It's, no, it's about the importance of fantasy. And all that other stuff is hot air. That's not stuff that really matters in life. That's just the basics that you need to carry on. Like, you need government and that kind of thing. But the thing that makes life worthwhile is fantasy and creativity and imagination. 
I am led to believe in that respect that the ninth year of any decade is the best time to release a film that may or may not, if good or if decent, may summarise certain aspects of cinema of the previous ten years, of the previous decade. So if you look at, say, 1979, Apocalypse Now. Oh, yes, of course. 69, you've got... Uh, Planet of the Apes. Bonnie and Clyde, or Planet of the Apes. Bonnie and Clyde was actually neither of them 69. What was the best picture winner of 69? Midnight Cowboy. There you go. Well, to be fair, any early Dustin Hoffman is good. The graduate Dustin Hoffman and Dustin Hoffman. In Dustin Hoffman. No, the graduate uh, Midnight Cowboy and, and, well, I mean, broaching into the 70s, uh, Straw Dogs. Yeah, I was 71. How do you feel about Straw Dogs? I like it. I've seen the uncut version, which is obviously the only version that's in circulation now. I just found it just insane Mm. that the only reason it was banned is because the the distributor pre-cut it in such a way as to make it look like a woman was enjoying being raped. But in the uncut version, it's very clear that she doesn't. Yeah, it's just idiotic that they would have done that and were shooting themselves in the foot. It's a complex... It's morally quite complex. And the, the, whole, the whole issue of the rape, it's quite clear-cut. Yeah. There's no, there's no ambiguity left in the film about whether or not it's condoning this. It's very clearly not. It's more the idea of someone taking such extreme steps of violence to protect his own environment. In the late 90s, there was a censorship season on Channel 4, which featured a roundtable discussion involving a uh, chain-smoking A.A. Gill and uh, a feminist and various other people. (laughs) A chain-smoking A.A. Gill and someone who was human. Anything could happen. They were sort of drawing on different examples, basically drawing on things that were then going to feature in their season on Channel 4. well, fair enough. Um, you know, so yeah, you had the Evil Dead, you had Straw Dogs, you had Caligula, Caligula, uh, w- which I very much would stand by being something we should talk about in cinema, but only because, aside from that, that it has a, a, a just a spectacular history. Yeah, but also the fact that Channel Four, and I have a copy of this, and this has not appeared anywhere else, edited their own version together. Oh, and there are moments which I will I. You know, I grew up on the Channel 4 version. I grew up on it. I watched it every day. Um, <laughs> um, like a pornocrat. Yes. I believe. I can't believe it's not butter. And maybe... That's it, disgusting. Maybe it's lard. Um, it might have been. And, yeah, it, it's... it's. I mean, basically any film that Malcolm McDowell in, 90, in the 1970s is slightly disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's... In an amazing, entertaining way. It's so... I mean, his his career was so he, everything he was in was sort of weird or transgressive in some way, and then right at the end of the seventies, nineteen seventy nine, he does Time After Time, which is a really nice science fiction adventure romance in which he is the the hero and the romantic lead, and it's so weird that he is the the dashing hero when in everything else he's done for the last 10 years he's played a murderer or a rapist or some kind of psychopath that's the thing I'd I'd like to clarify strongly that when I say disgusting I mean I I mean it's just that everything is is hard to watch there's something unpleasant about it yes absolutely a clockwork orange if in many respects if he's very hard to watch I really like it, actually. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't find it too much of an ordeal. No, I, I just find it. I just find it hard to watch because I know that this actually happened, for the most part, up until the end. But no, the, the, these. This is based on Lindsay Anderson's experiences at school in Tunbridge. Oh, I see. I mean, uh, there was a lot of awful bullying happening and a lot of that kind of uh, hierarchy in in the ranks, as it were. The things I went to a private school, private boarding school as well, and 
but that was in the 90s. Now so you, it, was, it, was, it was a lot different by then. Now, you're saying it didn't do you any harm, but I can see you twitching there when you're saying that. But no, I... And the, and the screams that you had to edit out. Oh, exactly. And I, you, you missed all that out, uh, dear, dear listeners. But no, I, I mean, you know, I went to a school which happened to be partially a boarding school. I, I got there uh, in the third year, and if you were there in there from the first year onwards, you would have, by theory, in theory, been in the boarding school. But if is a hard to, I think I would argue that if, in theory, if you ever bullied at school, is a hard film to watch. Well, that's the funny thing. I was bullied at school quite badly, particularly at boarding school. But I think just because the environment I was in was so different, and the important, important element was, I went to a coeducational school. It wasn't a boys' school. Was, uh, yours, was yours a boys' school? Uh, when I started this one in thirteen, no, it wasn't. Oh right. I so made a very conscious effort of pursuing the female form. Quite Oliver Reed, creepy. Um, Oliver Reed. Oh, I was but, but I think that precocious young man. <laughs> yeah, great. Promiscuous. I think that uh, that element though that the that the that environment of a boys' school it does create, I think, a quite a toxic environment. I don't think it's a good environment either for young boys because you need to you need to kind of learn and be around people at that age. The point of it's like, what's the point of school? It's not just to learn fact. It's educating you. It's developing you as a human being and preparing you emotionally and intellectually for the adult world, not just stuffing information into your head. So being in the right kind of environment is just as important. And for it to be single gender, I think, is a mistake. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the thing is, is that I made a very conscious effort of pursuing co-ed because I, at this point, already had a, had a taste of what that environment was like having been at drama school which was predominantly female oh and so when I hit 13 I was like well what's the point in going back into just men only mm. <laughs> you know male only so to speak yes and and the thing is I, for better or worse I will, I will argue I mean the thing is at the, end, at the same time although it was co-ed I mean it's one thing to try and figure out and adapt your own gender trying to fit yeah, among, amongst your own gender yeah you're, 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 do you mean you're, your own kind of sense of your own masculinity when, when or, or femininity if you're, if you're a woman you're not but. to my knowledge but I think I think it, for me personally I think when you're involved in just a male only environment at an early age and you're still kind still kind of trying to figure out who you are and, and, and where you stand certainly if you're being bullied uh, for whatever reason outsider and all that kind of you know social element I think having a whole new gender that's just as scary and confusing as the one that you're in and that you're trying to develop and adjust into yourself, in my experience, was just as intimidating because you suddenly weren't necessarily only aspiring to be the best you could be within your own environment, suddenly you had this whole new untapped environment of a different gender where you're trying to make sense of that as well. I think, I mean, I think it's an interesting thing to look at because ultimately you know from my memory from my thought is that you know sometimes they were meaner sometimes they were worse sometimes they were more vicious the girls yeah and yeah i've heard that yeah not so much in my school they didn't well they didn't bother me they weren't even aware i was there well that's the thing i think i think you know bullying um certainly in the early years bullying was always perceived in film more in a physical sense Mm. graphically yeah and I would adhere to be someone who was bullied in a more psychological sense people who knew what they were doing 
and 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 preying on someone who was vulnerable. Yeah. And I think I think that's something that that is more of an. In, I think that's something that's been tapped into far more in say in the last twenty five years or so uh, than it has been prior to that. And to be fair, if it has been tapped into that prior to that in a way, I they're they're the kind of films I'd like to investigate. But they're hard to watch. I mean, it's like certain not to dip into sitcom club, but I mean, Peep Show um, has a wonderful. Uh, uh, victorious element. I think one of the things that appeals to it is that it's the outsider making sense of the world from the outside looking in. Yeah. And that ultimately there's a triumphant element in that because it's reassuring and it's comforting to have characters who are on the outside looking in. And suddenly you realize maybe it's better to be on the outside if that's what it looks like on the inside. And that's what Gilliam's films are about. They're, yeah, they're about outsiders trying to adjust to the world that is otherwise considered reasonable or normal. Yeah, so it it's a tricky one. I I would say uh, certainly with I mean if I was going to say what well, I mean the most human Gilliam film, like the most drawn away from fantasy. Oh, um, realistic. Hmm. Um, I'd say the Fisher King perhaps has more cynicism because you've got the Jeff Bridges character kind of ingrained in that. I'd say I, I'd say the Fisher King probably. Be- it's also I think the most humane because it's about a man dealing with horrible trauma by escaping into a fantasy world in his yeah. own, and it's and, and, and it's just in his own imagination. Um, and it's it's a film of great compassion. I yes. think. Yeah. And I think deservedly it's regarded as one of his best films. Yeah. So I think his most mature, perhaps. Mm. And it's still, it's still able to keep that edge of fantasy and that stylization, whilst also being about much more grounded, deep themes. Well, that dance scene is glorious. The oh, yeah, that's wonderful. I remember seeing a clip of that on um, like Film 92. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, there's an upcoming clip from the new Terry Gilliam film. And it was just that scene that ran over the end credits of the programme. Yeah. Where everyone in Grand Central Station starts waltzing with each other. Mm. And it's wonderful. Yeah. So the Baron and his pals have been swallowed by a giant fish. <laughs> yes. And it turns out that inside are Adolphus and Gustavus, the remaining members of the Merry Band. I noticed something very particular at this point. Now, they at one point become very, like, neglectful and go, ah, forget it, let's just go and... let's just sit here and just live in this... Yeah. Time Bandits has the same thing. Time Bandits has a thing where they go, yeah, let's just go and leave him don't they they just go yeah let's just leave it yeah and that that's a real that's that's an interesting concept of withdrawal from fantasy where where you're I, you're, you're the last person in, in the uh, in the playground you know that, and then everyone's like, no no we're done we're mm. done and that I think that's interesting that he continues that trend even in Brazil as well that, that there's this thing of you've got the lead kind of fighting on for the fantasy and then this retraction from everyone else going no I'm not interested and I like the fact that I like the fact that, in this respect, Sally, Sarah Polly, the voice of reason, in many respects, is the one who... It's, it's sort of like... It's, it's weird because he's, he's trapped in a fantasy, but he's kind of just given up. He's yeah. given up in a fantasy. And so it's, it's her going... Even though she, and previously she was saying, hang on, you know, there's a war on. Yeah. This is where she's left in a position where he's reached such a low where she's going, hang on, you need to pull, your back, pull yourself back into the fantasy to get out of the fantasy, to get back into the real world. He's sort of rescinded so far back into himself, into the, the whale 
of this yeah. circumstance. And, and his, his, he surrendered control of his own fantasy. And that's, that's, I think, the great element about the character, is he's always very sort of in control of himself, very self-possessed. And here he's just giving up and letting, letting events control him. And in fact, once um, everyone sort of pulled themselves out of the muck in the, inside the fish, he's aged again. Yeah. Yeah. Being, being pulled out of the world of bliss, I think it's phrased, something like that. Or the state of bliss when he was dancing with Aphrodite. And would you say potentially that's, that is, you know, not to draw a final point on it, but that is limbo, that's purgatory, that's, that's where they are. If he just stayed in the whale... The, the four yeah. of them playing it, it is a kind of poetry. I mean, is it specifying the well? There were, it's so. Ju- there are like ships. They say you know, light aircraft, yeah. hamburger stands. No hamburgers, just the stands. Yeah. And, and and within all these various structures, the Adolphus and Gustavus and several other characters are, are just playing cards quietly. Terry Gilliam has a little cameo there as well as a yes, an accordion player who suddenly drops dead. Yeah. And the thing is, is that as well that that is that it's it's the concept of being trapped in your own mind. It's mm. it's sort of like, I mean, have you ever had a dream where you you you're too far in too far into it? And it doesn't feel like you can get out of it. It's the it's complete opposite of what I was speaking about earlier, where it's you're very aware of what it is, and you wake up, and then this this takes it to the, the complete opposite, where you're too far into it, and you just and and sometimes you have to force yourself to wake up out of the dream. Yeah, I've done that. I think this is what that, that scene is. Uh, I had to scream. I was screaming, wake up in my, in my own head, and I woke up. Every night? Yeah. D- during the day as well. Yeah. yeah. It's happening right now. I'll tell you what, it scares the heck out of the passengers on my bus. <laughs> that joke was copyright to um, Aristophanes. He's not here, though. Also in the fish is... The Baron's horse. Yes. And did you notice the name of his horse? Bucephalus. And which famous horse was that? Steptoe and Son. Yes, it, it was Alexander the Great's horse. Yes. Of course. And uh, as, as he mentions earlier in the film, he finds that a, a quantity of snuff can be most efficacious, and he uses it to trick the fish into sneezing everybody out. To which they discover, to their surprise, that they're right on the shore of the town. <laughs> of course, naturally. Naturally, it's 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 a plot convenience on multiple levels. I I kind of feel that that the breadth and length of the Adventures of Aaron Munchausen. I mean, Terry Gilliam. He's never, to my knowledge, after Python. He's never really done a television series. He's never really been. Um. No, he's worked mainly. Well, he's uh, worked mainly. He's actually done opera as well. Mm. But I know that I believe that he's working on a series project for Amazon, mm. uh, based on his long unmade script, *The Defective Detective*. Lovely. Yeah, I've, I've heard that's in the works. I've also heard that they were uh, working on the Don Quixote project, but it turns yeah. out that they're not. It's actually somebody else. I, I do feel that the Adventures of Merriman Chausen you know, if it was a, if it was present day, could have made a like all those diff- all these different set pieces could have made a great episode of a mini series on yeah. HBO or or Showtime or wherever. Well, there's um, there's a terrific 
um, version of Gulliver's Travels made about 20 years ago. Of course. With, uh, with Ted Danson, of yes. all people. But he was actually terrific. Oh, it's great. And it's this wonderful, lavish adaptation. And, it's, and it adapts the whole book, not just Lilliput and Brobdingnag, but also... Everything. Everything. The island of the Quinnums, the flying island of Laputa, all the other bits that you never see. We need that with the Odyssey. 100%. Yeah. A pr- I think that might have been done, actually. I not vaguely recall there being a, a TV series oh, of the Odyssey. I'm sure there has been at some point, but not in the last 20... 20 nothing that stood out. I nothing that's been lav- lavish. I vaguely recall there being something from Canada. Mm. But but it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, anything between the Odyssey and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they're just things that... These adventures, there needs to be more adventures. Yeah. Oh, goodness. The Baron tries to rally his team to attack the Turk, defend the town, but they're just... They're all old. Yeah. They're too old. But even so, the Baron says, right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sort this out myself. And he heads off to the Turk's tent where he's, where he's going to be executed. <laughs> yes. And, and isn't this very much the sense of, oh, I'm old anyway. It's, it's yeah. inevitable. It's, 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 again, it's giving up. It's surrendering to the forces of rationality. Yeah. But the team nevertheless managed to rally themselves. Who rallies? Is it is it is it the is it the voice of reason again? Is it is it Sally? I believe it is Sally. Yeah. Um, you you refer to her as the voice of reason. I, she's the kind of the connecting tissue between the Baron and his fantasy world and the real world. In she, that she she's charmed by the Baron and she likes him, but she knows that. One has to straddle both environments. She's a realist. She's, she's, a, she's a realist in a sense. Yeah, she, she's a realist in a child's body, and, and therefore can ex- and therefore can embrace imagination, but at the same time, understands the real issues at hand. Exactly. Yeah, she's a good role model. Yeah, and apparently very terrified. <laughs> yeah, and just, a, yeah. Sarah probably was absolutely terrified all the way through the making of the movie. Mm. The, the, the number of things exploding, the lack of health and safety regulations they had in Italy at the time. Oh dear. But everyone brings their various talents to bear. Adolphus manages to shoot away the executioner's blade at the last minute. Yeah. Gustavus blows away people. Albrecht gathers up the uh, anchors of ships and hurls them into yes. the army. And this is sort of one last hurrah that reflects what we first saw them do together. When, they, when the war started. Yeah. And um, someone at the end, I think, is it? It's not, is it Horatio? it's not Horatio Jackson yet, but someone, a sniper, fires a shot at the Baron, and Berthold sees it, and he out, he manages to outrun the bullet and ca- and tries to catch it. Yes. <laughs> the, he goes, goes oh, that's hot. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's great. But he, he, he grabs hold of a, a, a pipe or something and diverts it, and the bullet flies back and it hits the sniper. Yeah. Again, it's a great visual stuff of just... <laughs> Again, Eric Idle is the, the unsung hero of the movie because all the way through, he's playing it for laughs, even though he's not actually given much funny stuff to do. Yeah. Say, so, oh yeah, and just yeah, Eric, just do a dance. All right, then. and he just does a silly dance <laughs> for about five minutes. Yeah, Eric, grab the bullet and it's hot. Oh, ow! <laughs> it works. Yeah. But the the Turk is defeated, mm-hmm. and the people of the town celebrate wildly. They embrace. The Baron as the, their saviour of the hour, the man of the the man of the moment. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier the headless statue. Yes. Now, what were you going to say there? When I've stopped you. 
if I recall correctly, it's no longer headless. Uh, that's true. It has now been refashioned with the head of the... Well, with the not the head, but the in the image of the Baron. Now, bearing in mind the timeline, the strange timeline in the overall part of the film... Yes. We're left with two open endings we're le- in, in regards to this particular element. Mm-hmm. Was the statue headless because they were in need of a hero? Or was, because if we're being more linear with it, was it always the Baron and it was beneficial in the narrative structure for us not to have the head so we were aware that that was who the head was prior to the removal of it? I don't think... I don't think so. I think that it was... I, I like the, your suggestion that it's it's symbolic of the need of heroic figures, of, of great aspirational figures, because Jackson is deliberately, the way he kills the heroic soldier, he's deliberately avoiding that. Yeah. And within the context of the story, obviously the statues has been damaged by the war. That's why it doesn't have a head. But it, it, as you say, it is symbolic of that. And then when, we, when it finally has the head of the Baron... They have the hero they needed. They have the great aspirational character of fantasy to which we can look towards and say, I wish. But at the greatest moment of triumph, it's you know, this wonderful parade of being surrounded by an adoring fans and the, the Baron's team being carried on people's soldiers, Horatio Jackson from a clock tower fires a fatal bullet and the, the Baron is struck down in the prime of his life. Mm and bursting forth from a statue the angel of death sweeps down and extracts the little ball of life from his mouth mm. terrifying image and then in, in the theatre the baron says and that was just one of the many times at which I met my death <laughs> and everything we have been watching for the last hour and a half has been a story Yeah, because that's the whole point yes yeah. Now, I, I mean, I'm divided about this. I, I love the film. I really like the film. And I always found, when it came to the end, it was a bit of a... Not, not a write-off, not, not like a cop-out, but it was just... It, not because, it, yeah, as you say, it makes total sense, but because maybe it's, it's a fantasy hmm. overall, it seems entirely appropriate that it ends that way but at the same time I feel that as a child I would have been saddened because the blow's already happened the protagonist is killed and then everything after that doesn't like if you're watching that as a child if you're watching that from a young imaginative perspective you can't get out of that you're, you're thrown with that imagery with such, such terrifying imagery as well yeah. so, if, so if you're watching it as an adult it actually feels more like a sort of a a very telling thing of well, that's life. Yeah, you know that you know the angel of death can only be postponed and put off. But that's not the full end of the story, though. But ah, uh, because we have a little twist in that the Baron's story has sort of enraptured everyone in the theatre. He has them eating out of the palm of his hand, and they're all thrilled by his tale of. Although the women in the uh, in the theatre have appeared in the story, there's a, the young woman played by Uma Thurman, who obviously became his image of Aphrodite. 
beautiful ladies. Oh, beautiful ladies. Yes. His greatest weakness. He says, open the gates. Open the gates. The Turk, the Turk is gone. The war is over. And say, yes, yes, we, yes, Baron, we're, we're, we're with you. We're behind you. Even though you appear to just be a crazy old man telling stories, that's the thing that has inspired us. That's the thing that has given us the most zest for life. And Horatio Jackson tries to stop them, and he's just shoved out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Just because he's basically a bureaucrat. That's all he is. He's just an unpleasant little man. Yeah. And I, I don't mean little as in physically short. Little as in small-minded. Yeah. Because that's the worst kind. Yeah. They get to the front of the city. They tear down the barricades on the inside. They open the gates. And the army has gone. Defeated by the imaginative powers of the city. And then they shoot Baron Munchausen in the They don't shoot Baron Munchausen. <laughs> but he disappears and he's seen... In the distance, on a hilltop. On oh, the horse. On the horse, rearing up, a glint in his eye yeah. as he disappears into, into myth, into legend. Yeah. The thing is, though, is that with Terry Gilliam, I never feel like there is an happy ending, really. Like, I can't, I can't think of a single Terry Gilliam film where I actually felt satisfied that I was happy at the end. I love the film, but I actually get to the ending... Because the thing is, it's like with it, like with that, like the story, we're, we're enveloped into this story, then he gets shot. And then it's, oh, no, no, actually, this is part of the story. And then he goes off. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But actually, what he's done amazingly well is that, that this bit outside of that feels like a dream. Well, I think it's, it really makes me think of the last episode of The Prisoner, where... Spoilers. It was broadcast nearly 50 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> you've, you had, listen, you've had enough time to watch it by now. Same with The Mousetrap. Don't spoil the mousetrap. I might go and see that one day. That's uh, been out longer. I know. It's my podcast. I make the rules. But uh, at the end of The Prisoner, and I'll try not to spoil it too much, but it abandons straightforward storytelling and it's simply becoming flat out on-screen metaphor that you have to kind of take... You can't accept as a literal element of storytelling. So here, where they throw open the gates of the city and the Turkish army is gone, it's because... Imagination is more powerful. Fantasy is more powerful than just adhering to the real world. That it's imagination that can set you free, that can allow you to fight such things. I suppose when you compare that to, say, the ending of Brazil... In the, I'd say it's very similar, because in that sense, at the, end of the Brazil, at the end of Brazil, Sam Lowry is trapped, and in, in a conventional sense, he's lost forever. Yeah. But in his mind, he's living out this wonderful, idyllic life. And because of the genius casting, even though he's not the nicest man in this film, mm. the last shot of Michael Palin going, no, nah, he's gone, Yeah, kind of works. Because it's, yeah. like, it's like the one person you'd like, last like to see in this relatively bleak ending. It's like, oh, okay, well, Michael Palin being the, the, the sociopath, psychopath kind yeah. of torturer in this, yeah, that's, that's fine. That's right. I, I can accept that. But with Time Bandits... Time Bandits ends that's... very weirdly. I've never been happy with the ending of Time Bandits. Because that, that is both worlds colliding with no satisfying ending for I, anyone. No. It really... It really... It feels like it's like a reshoot or something. It, would, it wouldn't have been. I'm sure that's exactly the way Gilliam wanted it. But Lovely it just... music. Oh, yeah. George Harrison. But um, yeah, it, just, it's, it just seems so abrupt and... 
oh, the boy's house has burned down and his parents have died. And, and he's now an orphan. And, and he's and now an orphan and, it, and, and, and he doesn't have a house. And, and, and the people who he was living this fancy with have buggered off. Yeah. It's it's such a weird way to end it. There's nothing like at least with never ending story, you know, he goes back on the on the weird dragon thing. Falcor the luck dragon. Yes. Well that never ending story I think has a satisfying ending. Even though it's actually only the first half of the book. Well yeah, bearing in mind that in the sec- the second film the man who the boy who played uh the main character in that killed himself. Well, okay. not in the film though. <laughs> well that would been that would have been worse. No, I don't think it would have been. Um, but but yeah, no. It, it, but yeah, no. It, it, that's hard to watch. The second episode, the second never-ending story film, is very hard to watch when you know that the the main character, I mean, the main act, the lead actor, committed suicide. Yeah, yeah that's that's not fun. Played by played by Tony Hancock. Uh, he was an it as well. Tony Hancock. Yeah. So overall, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yes. I really enjoyed it. I hadn't seen it for a very long time. It's it it works on, on a number of levels. It's a really fun, exciting adventure story. It looks gorgeous. There's one sort of, all the comic elements work really well. Eric Idle is, I think, the, the MVP because e- everything he does is just funny. The reluctant MVP, yeah, <laughs> based on everything. <laughs> it's like being forced to be funny at gunpoint. Like really, because seriously, I've, I've, I've you know we've seen the eight, we've seen an interview at the time, and I've seen an interview interview twenty five years later, and he he still is very much like, oh, I can't believe I did that. It yeah, I mean, the film must have been a nightmare to make. Yeah, and actually, we haven't once named the actor playing the Baron. I and- did. <laughs> I haven't once, <laughs> but um, actually, there, there is there is one thing I want to say before we before we before we round off. John Neville. Before I was so rudely interrupted. Before the Baron departs at the end, one one recurring theme throughout the movie is he gives a little rose to all the, to the all the beautiful ladies. Yes, and he's about to give his last rose to one of the women of the town, and little Sally goes. <coughs> is, is that and he gives the last rose to Sally mm. and I think that's that's lovely well yeah I mean she's the one who kind of more or less saves the day yeah but he's sort of because, because he, as you say the Baron is quite narcissistic and very selfish but he's acknowledging so I appreciate everything you've done you know in, in, bo- in both wo- in sort of the, the now overlapping worlds of the story and reality you are sort of, you, you deserve this more than all and it's 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 a lovely se- sentimental moment, and it's underlining finally, he may be selfish and self-centered and narcissistic, but he does care about some the people around him. Yeah, he does have empathy, but it's it's because he's he's buried so much in the concept of adventure and imagination that is the empathy, human tendencies are there when they need to be. Which kind of adds to the charm is that 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 yeah he you know he'll he'll go on adventures he'll be this charming enigmatic man mm. but ultimately the empathy will come when necessary it will come after the fact it will come when everything is said and done it yeah. not throughout no at the end it comes through regret yes but John Neville as the Baron John Neville devastatingly good. 
The only other film I've seen John Neville in is the X-Files movie. I know. Yeah, he turns up in the X-Files. He was not a, a particularly well-known actor. I've actually seen him named several times online as Sir John Neville, not knighted. Huge theatrical actor. Yeah, a giant of the stage. In fact, funnily enough, I noticed that showing on the Horror Channel, the best TV channel later today, is A Study in Terror, in which he plays Sherlock Holmes. Ooh. I have to dip into that. Um, not Obviously not relevant to the people listening now. No, I mean... Uh, well, look out for it. Well, frankly, the Horror Channel is probably going to be showing it again fairly soon. Yeah. It respects quality. But he's... Sponsor, sponsor. <laughs> please, please send us free stuff. Yeah. But uh, he's he's really terrific in this film. Mm. Uh, it's 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 such a hard character to play because he's trying to be all things at once and several hours of grueling makeup every day. Yeah. I mean, he's severely committed, and it shows. He would have been a great Don Quixote. He could have been a perfect Don Quixote. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I sincerely hope that Gilliam continues. I really hope, you know what, even if Don Quixote ends up being his last film and he retires after that or pursues more impossible things that never get finished after that, I sincerely hope he finishes Don Quixote and it ends up being, if not his last great hurrah, then at least one that once again highlights the continuous imaginative spontaneity of his already overwhelmingly decent career. Thanks to George Grimwood for making the time to be on this podcast. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes, with over a dozen episodes available, so please do subscribe, download, and review all our hard work. You can also contact me via Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, or if you have any personal messages for me, at j underscore j underscore phillips, with two L's. However, until next time, everyone who had a talent for it lived happily ever after. The end. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnose.com. You haven't answered the most important part of the question. It's just convenient. That's what the bath's for.